I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum! Astral Radio Z is a horror cult. Exploitation film podcast by filmmakers, critics, musicians, journalists, and fans for the film obsessed. Welcome to another episode of Astro Radio Z. I bet you thought you would never hear my sultry tones ever again. It has been over a month and a half since I've done an episode. And in that time, I have actually recorded two episodes that have not seen the light of day. We actually recorded an episode of for polyester the next john waters episode we we're supposed to do but the wonderful land of youtube have changed how we do the podcast and they lost the show so that show was recorded it was wonderful i was excited and it vanished into the ether so you will have to wait for that episode <laughs> hopefully in the next month we'll re-record the polyester episode and get back into the swing of things and then because this is october it's the 31 days of horror challenge month and i was thinking i was going to mix things up a little bit and do a weekly kind of recap on where i'm at because I watch way too much shit this month. Every year, I tell myself, hey, only do one a day. Or, you know what? You don't really have to fulfill this challenge. But I end up watching three movies a day or some shit. I'll just have something running all the time. So I'm like, okay, I'll do a weekly show where I'll recap. I recorded that show and um, listen to it. I'm like, no. Fuck this. I'm not putting this out either. Um, and I think maybe this is just because now that I, I kind of put the halt for a little while on doing the weekly show, I'm feeling very self-conscious about the stuff I am putting out there. Kind of like the way I used to record this show <laughs> and how I used to run this show is where I didn't just force things out there. Now I want the, uh, the content to be there and I want to have something to speak about. Which um, brings us to tonight's episode. In the last two months, we have lost two of the most iconic and um, legendary figures in all of exploitation and cult film. In uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis, who if you have been following our uh, RSS feed and our podcast feed, you will have heard an old episode that we decided to repost where the original host of this show, Corey Udler, who's with us tonight, um, interviewed Herschel. And uh, it's a wonderful, it's one of my favorite episodes of Astro Radio Z that ever was recorded. Um, just because Herschel meant a lot to all of us as uh, cult fans growing up in his films, basically, you know, anyone that's in this game that is making film or that are fans. He's responsible for a vast majority of everything that we see and that we grew up on. So to, to lose him, somebody that was still making and producing films all the way until the end, that was a tough pill to swallow. Then this week, we lost the other big heavy hitter. We lost on Sunday, the one, the only 
Ted V. Michaels. This struck very close to home uh, for all of us here on the show, and especially uh, Corey. Corey, would you like to kind of, uh, one, say hi to the listeners? And kind of, why don't you, why don't you tell us about your relationship with uh, Ted V. Michaels? Well, first, greetings and salutations from the planet Earth, where uh, I think 40% of our population no longer lives. The way I got to know Ted was I was just a fan of Ted's from about 1988. Um, There was the Incredibly Strange Film Show and uh, hosted by Jonathan Ross, and he would do uh, biographies um, on John Waters and... uh, he did Ed Wood and Doris Wishman and Russ Meyer and H.G. Lewis, and he did Teddy Michaels. And I, I devoured every episode of that. But the one that always stuck out was Ted because he, he was just larger than life. The show kind of starts out and they're in the desert and you hear an accordion playing in the background and the camera pans over from Jonathan Ross to this guy, this barrel chested dude with a little bit of a, a gray pompadour and a handlebar mustache and a giant board tusk around his neck. And he's playing roll out the barrel in the middle of the desert. And I'm like, what? This is just weird enough uh, for me to really enjoy. And the episode went on and, and you hear the story of, of Ted and how he started making films and, and how he made movies by any means necessary and never played by studio rules, was never a SAG, uh, never used SAG actors, was never in the, you know, the director's guild or anything, you know, just would not play the game, didn't want people telling him what to do and how to do it. And he parlayed that into later living in Glendale, California, in a legitimate castle with a harem of women, castle ladies, and made movies like Astro Zombies and Blood Orgy of the She-Devils and Girl in Gold Boots and Doll Squad and just these phenomenally titled movies with these sensational ad campaigns. And the movies themselves were were so far out and so crazy, but so enjoyable that you knew that, that nobody was standing over Ted's shoulder saying, now, Ted, in this scene with the Astro Zombie, make sure that he has a blue tweed jacket on and, hold, <laughs> and, and holds a, a flashlight to his forehead in order to power his solar, his solar brain. Um, and, and from that point forward, I was always a fan of Ted B. Michaels. And once the internet age kind of kicked into high gear, um, I would go and just, you know, do a search for these guys and find what Bill Rabane was doing and find what Herschel Gordon Lewis was doing and find what Ted B. Michaels was doing. And I stumbled on Ted B. Michaels' website, tedbmichaels.com. Web address there, tvmstudios at aol.com, which was ironically enough the email that Ted always used. He never stopped using his, <laughs> his AOL account. And, uh, so I just shot off an email to it and just basically said, Hey, you know, I've, I've just been a, a fan of Ted, not thinking that it was Ted B. Michaels because to, to me, Ted B. Michaels was a rock star, you know, right. he was the guy, you know, that was the guy for me. Um, the only guy that I ever sat there and said, you know, God, if I make a movie, I want to make a movie like Astro Zombies. You know, I just wanted to make something so bizarre that people can't, you know, that you can't even almost a normal thinking person who goes to the multiplex and watches those kind of Hollywood movies 
a movie that they could never wrap their head around that that just is not meant for them these movies are meant for me and if i ever made a movie i wanted to make a movie like tabby michaels you know things so bizarre that you couldn't categorize and so i just shot an email off to the email address and not thinking i'd ever hear a response back or anything but i just basically wrote a little love letter and said you know i've been a fan forever I love what you're doing. You know, are you still doing movies? Do you still live in Glendale? Where are you now? You know, are you still in Las Vegas? Um, and within a day, I got a huge <laughs> written email back from Ted. And at the bottom of it, he said, just give me a call sometime. And he gave me his phone number. Wow. And I thought, fuck, I, go, I, I sat around with it forever going, oh, in the hell am I going to call Ted B. Michaels? What the hell do I have to say to Ted B. Michaels? I mean, it's, you know, I've, I, I was a fan of the guy since I was a, you know, 12 years old. And so I finally just talked to Ted. And from that, um, we just kept talking. And around that time, I was starting to kind of dip my toes in the water of, I had gone back to school. So I had um, skills and some graphics and, and, you know, camera setups and lighting setups and uh, and written the script. Our final project was we did a short film and I had written the script for it. And I just enjoyed it so much, you know, around this time I was talking to Ted that our conversation then turned to what are you doing next, Ted? And he had just done a, cause he had come off of Mark of the Astro Zombies, the sequel, he'd come off mm-hmm. Corpse Grinders 2. He had done Cauldron Baptism of Blood, which was kind right. of an offshoot of Blood Orgy of the She-Devils. And so he was doing the horror pictures, but he had taken a detour in true Ted fashion, did whatever he felt he wanted to do. And he did kind of a, uh, a family film, almost like a character study about a little boy with cancer. It's called heart of a boy or it was a heart transplant. Yep. And, uh, and it wasn't his most successful uh, foray. Uh, he didn't do well with that movie at all. Like there was no interest. People are going, this is Ted B. Michaels. I want something, you know, completely bonkers. And yeah, outlandish and uh, yeah. Yeah. Something really sensational with monsters and some sort of, you know, uh, half, half cooked uh, sci-fi, you know, scientific uh, uh, subplot or, you know, something. Um, people wanted to see Tourist Satana. People wanted, you know, this cra- the crazy stuff that Ted had done. And he didn't have another project. And so I just kind of, you know, asked him, I said, you know, oh, do, you know, do, do you mind if, you know, I write something for you? And he said, yeah, sure, go ahead. And so him and I went back and forth. And we came up with, originally it was titled Demon Bloodlust. And he he thought the title was a little too, because Ted, you know, at the end of the day, made these crazy movies about, you know, cat food made from people and astro mm-hmm. zombies macheting people in the head. But at the end of the day, you know, Ted found that a little bit distasteful, which I thought was funny, because I thought that title was great. Um, so he changed the name to Demon Haunt. And I knew, you know, just from being a fan of Ted's, you know, I knew that that there were budgetary constraints. You know, I knew that Ted didn't have money to make movies. Who the fuck has money to make movies? Right. Especially on the scale that he wants to make them. His movies, let's be honest, 
are ridiculous <laughs> and, and they go well beyond their means they in well, scope and in concept. And the perfect example of it was Demon Haunt because I wrote the script knowing, you know, that Ted had no money. So the, the scenes where there were demon encounters or um, ghostly encounters or paranormal things going on, I wrote them in such a way that they could be done by actors or things that were seen off screen or fog, you know, just, just things cheap, like doing it on the cheap. And he got the script. He loved it. And it was a fun script to write. And, (laughs) you know, and what would happen was I would send Ted a script and then we wouldn't talk uh, for, for a while while he was figuring out logistics and going through the script and seeing what he wanted to do. And before I know it, he's sending me these 3D models. Now, this is in the early stages of when CG was accessible, I guess, as accessible right. as it is today. Um, so he had a guy that that worked with him very closely at his studio in Las Vegas. Mac was his name, ironically enough, Mac. And um, Mac started to construct these elaborate <coughs> demons and Ted goes, we're going to have CG demons and we're going to have things flying out of the wall and this and that and everything else. And I'm going, Ted, I wrote this so that you could shoot it for $15. <laughs> you know, and before I know it, he's turned it into this massive CG undertaking that took after he was done shooting at least a year, year and a half to come up with all of these different CG because A, there was no money. Right. He had just, you know, Mac was the only guy doing it for him. Well, and that kind of stuff takes a lot of time in post. It's frame by frame by frame. Yeah, rendering that stuff, designing that stuff. In, In 2009 and 2008 when that was made, the computers aren't what they are now. Not at all. Not at all. And Ted didn't have you know, the state of the art stuff, even for the day. Um, so I, the render times in and of itself, like, he, you know, he would email me and say, oh, we've got a 47 hour render going now. I'm like, you're going to blow that computer to bits. <laughs> yeah. And if that, if that crashes, you got to start all over start all over again. So, so he finally got done with it and put it out and, you know, the, the, the CG is, is ridiculous. Yes, that's putting it lightly. Putting it lightly. And Ted was so proud of the movie. And the thing that I was most proud of was that the movie had, you know, it was a narrative, which, you know, in a lot of Ted's movies, especially if you've ever seen Mark of the Astro Zombies or Corpse Grinders 2, Ted wrote those scripts. And, you know, the thing when Ted would write a script is that he could just constantly adjust it because it was his words and it was all, everything going on in his head. So he could always say, oh, no, we need a, a dinosaur, Cody. We got to put a dinosaur in there. And he could do it, you know, <laughs> on, on the movies that he wrote. Whereas when I would send him movies, it was a beginning, middle and end. And these were characters that we were developing right. throughout the movie and a story that was pushing forward. Um and, and that was, you know, the case on all that. So, so yeah, so I got to write Demon Haunt for him. And after that, he started talking about, well, what are we going to do next? And decided that another Astro Zombies was in order. So a 12-year-old me would have looked at this and said, you're going to write uh, an Astro Zombies movie for Ted B. Michaels. 
I would have said, this is, you're, you're fucking insane. How does that even happen? But that's exactly what happened. And then at one point, him and I were going back and forth and decided the doll squad need to come back for this movie. So I'm writing basically a sequel to doll squad and a sequel and, and the third installment in the Astro zombie series. And so, so we did that. And that one was a lot of fun. And the movie itself is very fun. And you and I talked about it and said, you know, you could probably cut a good 15, 20 minutes out of it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. any script I ever sent to Ted was never over, you know, 90 pages. Um, but all the movies wound up being almost two hours because Ted would always add things to it. And uh, so we did that one. And then he, during that time, had kind of come up with, the idea to do Astro Zombies M4. And he had, he, he always had the tagline in his head, invaders from cyberspace. And um, <laughs> so that one kind of took on a life of its own. Him and I kind of started talking about it and I was going to do some writing for it, but then you're still credited. Mm-hmm. I think I'm credited with story or something. Right. right. Um, so we did, you know, the, the story itself, because the, the idea that I kind of had was <coughs> that the Astro Zombies have taken over earth basically through the internet and through computers, you know, they've sent them through the, uh, through the lines and they've taken over, you know, the universe. And, um, but that one, he, you know, he, he had gotten different ideas for it. And, um, he was having people all around the world saying, Ted, I want to be a part of your movie. How can I be a part of it? I can't fly there. Can I film something? So then Ted came up with the idea that, the Astro Zombies were then going to take over the world. And he had uh, people in Germany and all across the country and everywhere uh, just sending, he would tell them what to shoot. He'd say, and I need 15 people running away from the Golden Gate Bridge and I'm going to blow the bridge up and there's going to be Astro Zombies. <laughs> um, so I didn't write the script to that one, um, but I was involved in that one. And then uh so, so that was kind of a departure. And, and every one of these movies for Ted was, it was two years um, from inception to completion. Well, and, he had his hands in, he was shooting it. He was producing it and he even cut all this stuff all by himself. I mean, we're talking a guy that at that point was in his eighties. Yeah. Ted was in his early eighties. And, and during the time that M3 was, was going on, Ted was getting some terrible back pain. And, you know, now kind of looking at what took Ted from us, you know, I don't know if it was, you know, something going on there because Ted passed from cancer. And I don't know if the back pain was, you know, kind of a harbinger of of things to come, but, you know, nothing was giving him any relief. So here's a guy that's in his 80s in excruciating back pain, nothing giving him any any relief. And he's standing over his camera and his editing system and he's acting in the movies and he's doing everything, building the props and, and all of this. So, you know, around that time, his back started to give him problems and things and um, did M4. And then after that, you know, we just started talking uh, again about, you know, what are you going to do next? And we kind of decided around like M3 that we would try a Corpse Grinders 3. So I started writing what was almost a reimagining of the original Corpse Grinders set kind of modern day. And 
that and, and I don't really even remember why we didn't follow through with it. And I think it was because Ted just out of nowhere came up with the idea for paranormal extremes, text messages from the dead. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> all he had was text title. messages from the dead. And he's like, he was sold that we're going to make a movie about text messages from the dead. That's <laughs> all I had to go on to write a script for. But I'm like, what the fuck am I supposed to write about people sending text messages from <laughs> beyond? And so we went back and forth on that. And, and the funny thing when, when I would write scripts for Ted is when I was writing them, I would talk to Ted sometimes three times a night um, just because he would just call me and go. And then I came up with an idea. And I know this guy, Lonnie Hannigan out here, and he's a collector and he has World War II biplanes in his house and he has Liberace's piano. So let's get Liberace's piano in there. And so I, I had to have, so in the script I wrote, Liberace <laughs> was still living in his piano. <laughs> and just all of this bizarre stuff that I'm trying to uh, aggregate into, you know, a, a narrative script. Well, and the film feels that way too. I mean, cause I, I finally got to see paranormal extremes <laughs> after all this. I, I remember when that was going on and you and I were talking about it and you sent me the script. So I kind of had an idea of what it was. And then when I finally saw it, it yeah. felt exactly how you described it felt like he just is so brimming with ideas all the time that and and as you said mark of the astro zombies is very much the case of this it just becomes too much and it's yeah. just like your brain gets pulled in 50 different places i mean it feels really fun but at the same time it's just like it's not your normal film experience that you're used to and that you've been kind of groomed into to being accustomed to no. anymore no and it's exhausting at times by the end of it, because you're like, why the fuck did that guy show up at this point? And then you never saw him again. And then why was Liberace's piano played? <laughs> like, what the fuck? But the thing with it was, is that Ted had so many admirers and so many interesting friends and things. And so many people that wanted to just be a, an astro zombie or be, sure. or be seen in, a, in one of his movies. And Ted was never a guy, and I am living proof of that, that Ted never said no to anybody. When I asked Ted, hey, can I have a shot at writing a script for you? Yep. You know, so if somebody said, hey, I've got, you know, an idea and, I, and I've got a, a cool costume that I could wear in a scene, Ted would find a way to fit that shit in the movie somehow. I mean, what's the, what's the worst that could have happened? You just said, oh, this is just not going to work. Right. I mean... What does he have to lose at this point? Nothing. He was, that's just how he was. He just loved everybody and thought that everybody had something to offer, you know, his movies. He always thought that, that's, that everybody that, that he came in contact with had something to say and had something to offer. And if they were willing to put the legwork in on it for him, he would put them in the movie. He'd do anything for him. Didn't matter if it was music or an actress or an actor or anything. He 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 found a place to to put him in the movies, you know. And everybody that was ever around Ted or was in the movies or had anything to do was honored to do so. Right. Well, you can and, definitely tell that they had a lot of fun making those movies because there is an energy to them. I mean, 
most people are not going to be able to get beyond beyond the fact that uh, after a certain point, which I think um, his last shot on film was probably uh, did was Dimension in Fear on film. I think Dimension in Fear was video. Was I, video. I, I, I want to say it's that, even earlier, maybe eighties. I think maybe the last one that he did on film might have been Mission Kill Fast. Okay, sure. Yeah, because right around because Ten Violent Women in the early eighties and that stuff was still film. That was all so, still film. Yeah, Ten right. Violent Women and Doll Squad was late, you know, mid to late seventies. Right. He moved okay. to Vegas in eighty five, mm-hmm. and I think by eighty five he had made the transition or was making the transition kind of to video. Yeah, but yeah. I think, I think Dimension of Fear was definitely video, but Kill Fast was probably eighty. 586 maybe 87 i don't even know but i but that might have been that might have been the last one that he did on film that is the price of admission for the latter era uh, ted v michaels is that a lot of people aren't going to be able to get past the fact that the video looks really cheap but but the thing is Ted never skimped on ideas and and going through with and trying to like restrict himself on a scale um, for the ideas that he had because I just went through and and that probably didn't make much sense but I'll explain it what I mean by that um, I just went uh, once uh, we found out that uh, we lost Ted this week. I decided, and it's been years since I've done this, I decided to go back and rewatch the entire Astro Zombies um, series, which there are four of, as we just explained. And as the series went along, and as obviously the budgets got even smaller, if you can imagine that. Yeah, inconceivable. Um, yeah, the films got bigger, in, in not only in scope, but in just like, the sheer amount of things that he tried, he accomplished from a production standpoint just like blew my mind from the first film. The first Astro Zombies, a very simple kind of film, very cheap. It was shot on film, obviously, uh, back in 1968. Shot on short ends. Yep. And there's barely any Astro Zombie in it. But but uh, we have John Carradine's in it. Tura Satana's in it. Uh, it, it's just like, it's ridiculous, but it's still a, a low budget picture. And you can tell that, you know, this isn't the age of CGI. This is just like practical. We have what we have and let's make a picture. Right. By time we get to Mark of the Astro Zombies, the second one in 2004, the digital age has come around. There were personal edit stations at home. You could do, um, special effects within the computers and this and that. And it admittedly is a very cheap looking film, (laughs) very cheap looking film. The effects are hokey, but he's got Liz Renee in it. He's got Tura Satana in it. He's got Brink Stevens in it. Um, He's got tons of of like B list, you know, famous people that are in here and there's, my favorite part are, are, are the these aliens that are in these bad prosthetics with horrible voiceover and stuff. It just the the it just got more and more ridiculous. And yeah. the two that you were involved in, he took those ideas 
And what he added to those, it just blew my mind that a guy at, at his age was willing to, to not just kind of take the easy route. These films from a low budget standpoint are so ridiculously like full of effects yeah. and, and they're, they take chances all M4 invaders in cyberspace. I just watched today. That movie is insane. (laughs) (laughs) It's literally there's a, uh, somehow there are, there's now a planet of Astro zombies. (laughs) It's never explained how that actually happened. If you watch a series up to that point, there were always human beings that were, that corpses of human beings that were uh, modified in order to be killing machines right. with solar batteries and all this stuff. But then all of a sudden M4 comes around and now there's a whole planet <laughs> of these things. I, who knows? It doesn't matter. But the whole thing is, is that these things are literally shooting lasers out of their eyes and blowing up every huge monument. <laughs> <laughs> the face of the planet pyramids and oh, stonehenge and <laughs> it's just ridiculous and, and and that was the thing that i loved about watching his his movies and, and it was that you you had to curb your your need to have things polished and just go along for the ride and smile his movies always make me smile same with herschel gordon lewis who we talked about a little bit before these guys came from an era where films were just made differently they had different sensibilities to them and ted never lost that one of my favorite things that um i remember that since you and i have been corresponding and uh, getting to know Ted through you basically I never got the opportunity to actually talk to him um, but he sent you this video of him scooting around Las Vegas on a scooter <laughs> and just how he was in that video to not only he was talking to you but he was also just like talking to random people he was filming on the streets as he was taking an adventure he seemed like the most happy individual I've ever seen and especially as an old person well, and it just like delighted me it like warmed my heart and I never forgot about that video no and I just watched it you know on, on Monday you know the day after I, I found out that well you were the one that told me um that Ted had passed and so that was the first thing that I that I dug out and and what it is is Ted was getting ready to film Paranormal Extremes and he had gotten his hands on the little high-def handheld cameras. So he would just take his rascal scooter out on his daily jaunt, on his trusty steed, Sir Lancelot. He called his, <laughs> that's what he called his rascal scooter. My trusty and, steed, Cory. <laughs> Cory, I'm on my trusty steed. <laughs> and, uh, and he, he'd have the damn thing loaded up with, he had his cane and he had this old knife that he always carried. It, it, it just, he was loaded, ready for battle to go on this thing. And that's all he was doing. He was just going out for a ride. So you were just going on the daily uh, jaunt 
that Ted would take on his trusty steed, Sir Lancelot. And he was just trying out his new little camera, just showing what it could do and how clear the picture was, this and that. And at one point in the video, and you feel terrible because Ted had this old knife, and I don't know, it was some Middle Eastern knife that he had had since the 60s. Why he had to take it on his ride, I don't know. I guess it just kind of went everywhere with him. And just to let, you know, like basically what you'd call up here a buck knife. And um, at one point in the ride, he loses it and he doesn't know where it is, but he's, he's way far gone on his drive. He's got to go back the same way he came. And he's, he's just so bummed out that he lost this knife. And he's saying, oh, I sure hope I find my knife. And uh, he goes back the same way he came. And, it, and on his way through, he was talking about, and sometimes I, and this isn't verbatim, but he was basically saying, sometimes I, you know, go on these and I run into some of the homeless people and boy, they're just the nicest people. But, you know, they, like everyone else, are just struggling to make it in this world. And, you know, they just must have hit a, hit a hard patch, but that doesn't change that they're still nice people. And, and I talk to them every time I come through here. And after he'd lost his knife, he came through and he, he encountered one of the homeless men that he sees every time he goes on his jaunt. And he asks, he goes, have you, have you seen a knife? It was about this long and it had the handle. And the homeless guy goes, oh, yeah, I got it right here. I, I found it. I didn't know what it was for. And he goes back and gives it to him. And then Ted is just laughing it, it, with just sheer bliss that this man had found his knife and gave it back to him. And he says, oh, I had this knife since the 60s. He said, and I, I use it to cut my pineapple. <laughs> and, uh, but just having this interaction, with, you know, with this homeless man, uh, you know, about the knife and the, and the homeless guy gave it back to him. You know, here's a guy that doesn't have anything, but but Ted comes through, loses his knife and the guy gives him his, his knife back. And uh, it, it was just the video itself was just such a reflection of what Ted was. And for a guy that was in crippling back pain and was getting older and had never really made you know, any money off of his big movies. He got completely fucked on Astro Zombies because he had signed a deal with a distributor that basically Ted took a year and a half to make that movie, poured everything he had into it, got to the end of it, had nothing. Got, got made, not, made not one penny off of Astro Zombies. Um, in later years, you know, doing the other Astro Zombies films and then probably doing some merchandise and things. He made a little bit of money, but not a lot. You know, so here's a guy that if I had been through what Ted had been through, I'd be the most insufferable prick. I, I am anyway. And I was, you know, I never went through <laughs> half of the stuff that, that Ted went through. And he was, he was just, that's who he was. He was just a beautiful, beautiful man. He was the, he was the most wonderful person I ever, especially if you want to put it in terms of doing film work, mm -hmm. nobody I ever encountered uh, was like Ted. Ted was the best of the best of everybody that I ever met or worked with or did anything on any level in the film stuff with. In any interview I ever did when I was doing my movie stuff, um, I always said and meant that doing the movies for Ted was the proudest thing that I'd ever done in any of the, the movie stuff. I did five movies 
on my own basis. And I mean, not on my own, you know, of course, all the actors. And, right, right, right. And, we know what you mean. Well, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it was, yeah. it was me that sat down and came up with the idea. It was me that, that went out and shot it. It was me that brought it back and edited it. And then it was me that took it out and tried to show it to the world. Um, but during, you know, all of those, and that's an accomplishment. And you know that mm-hmm. you come up with an idea and you see it to fruition um, that's a major thing, man. Not everybody does that. Making movies is not a thing everybody does. You know, I mean, even in this day and age where it may seem that way, it's not. Um, it's a major accomplishment to just do one thing, you know, I mean, and to do five of them and then to get to the end of all of that and still look back on 10, 12 years of doing things and say, doing those those scripts for Ted was the best thing I ever did. And, and, and it's still the thing I'm most proud of. And, and with Ted, you know, what had kind of happened was I, I hadn't really talked to Ted too much in the last year, year and a half and email here and there, because I knew that Ted was doing 10 violent women too. And what would happen when I would finish a script for Ted, Ted would just cocoon himself in that, in that thing. And I wouldn't talk to Ted sometimes for six, eight months at a crack because I knew he was busy. I knew every night he was up editing. I knew every day he was shooting. I knew that he was really doing the hustle on this stuff. So it really wasn't uncommon in the 12 years or whatever that I knew Ted and was working with Ted to go for long stretches of time and just not call or him not call me or not communicate. So, you know, in the last year and a half, you know, I just, I, just didn't. And I wasn't close to anybody except Ted. Ted was the only guy I talked to. I didn't talk to any of the actors. I didn't Mm -hmm. talk to any of the other people. Um, And I don't want to call them hangers on, but you know, a lot of the people that were always kind of around and doing this and doing that. I just wasn't that guy. You know, I was just happy to write something cool for Ted that would keep him busy and keep him moving and give him another project. And to have my name next to Ted on something was enough for me. That's, that was enough to just have the interactions with Ted and the, and the creative and just to, to be able to be in a creative situation with Ted was more than I ever expected, more than I ever could have wanted. So it wasn't uncommon for me to not talk to Ted for long stretches. And, you know, I, I, I didn't even I didn't know and I felt terrible and I, and I was kind of beating myself up about it that I didn't even know Ted had cancer. Um, you know, I knew that Ted wasn't feeling well and I, and I knew that his back pain was bad and, and on, uh, paranormal extremes, you know, and that, I think it was like 2014 or 15. Um, you know, I was seeing that Ted and Ted would tell me, Oh, I have to sit down a lot more and I can't stand up and direct anymore. And I'm not able to use the camera as much as I wanted to, because I just can't stand and mm-hmm. things like that. So I always, you know, as, as awful as that sounds, I would always think I don't want to write a script for Ted and then go, I wrote, you know, the last movie I wrote for Ted was Ted's last movie. And that always kind of, you know, was in the back of my head. Cause I, cause Ted was almost 90 years old. 
Well, you had to ex- expect that if you were going to continue a relationship with him, this would inevitably happen. Exactly. And it was always in the back of my head going, man, I just don't want to be, you know, I, I never wanted the last, like I said, the last movie I wrote for Ted, I didn't want it to be the last movie that I wrote for Ted. Of course. You know? And it kind of wound up that way. I mean, he, you know, he was doing 10 Violent Women 2, which he didn't get to finish. And I know that Drew Marvick, I believe is his name, was a guy out there that was in Paranormal Extremes and had struck up a relationship with Ted. And uh, I know that Ted, uh, basically in the last few weeks, had had told Drew um, to please finish this movie. And he said, by any means necessary, that he will finish it. And so, yeah, I didn't didn't get to talk to Ted, um, regretfully, but... You know, the one thing that I that I take solace in was knowing that the times that Ted and I were creating these movies and things that Ted knew how much I appreciated it. I knew how much Ted appreciated what I did for him. And I told him every time we would talk how much he meant to me. And in any, like I said, any interview or any article that I would ever write, I mean, go ahead and Google it anybody out there um you're talking stuff that dates back 10 years that i would always say that everything i do if, if it wasn't for Teddy michaels i wouldn't have done any of this and so i took solace in the fact that you know ted knew that i loved him very much and i i hope and know that that ted knew how much he meant to me and how much i loved him because i i i did and I loved him before I had done anything with him. Um, just from, from as an outsider perspective, I was like, that's my guy. And then to get to know him and live in that world a little bit, because I got to go to Los Angeles with him. Um, at one point when he was doing the wild world of Ted B. Michaels and we were starting with demon haunt and things were starting to pick up there and he was doing the, the script was done and he was doing the 3d modeling and all this stuff. And we did a Fangoria panel, uh, in the middle of a day in Los Angeles. And there I was on stage with Ted V. Michaels talking about a movie. Like I had any fucking right to be in any conversation along with Ted V. Michaels, you know, but he insisted, um, that I was there with him and, you know, also got to go to the Astro zombies M3, cloned premiere in Las Vegas. And at the end of that, I gave him a big hug and I said, Ted, I loved it. I, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to be a part of this. And, um, you know, so to have those experiences and things and to just know, you know, how our creative process was, you know, was, was enough for me. Cause I was just selfishly, uh, you know, wondering, if, if Ted knew, you know, how much he meant to me and and things like that. But, you know, Ted and I knew each other for 12 years and I had visited him several times in Las Vegas and seen him other times. And so all that was, was just me being selfish. And I talked to uh, uh, Donna Hamblin, who was DeMarco in M3 cloned. And she was in a lot of his, his movies. And she still yells at me about the, scientific bullshit that I wrote in the script. 
<laughs> he goes, Ted was getting frustrated that I didn't know what, I couldn't do this, you know, and she just had such a hard time because it was such tongue twisting horse shit that I wrote because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make sure it was the mumbo jumbo. Yeah. That's what all those movies had. All those. Yeah. Just, just crackpot science nonsense. And, um, I talked to her and, you know, she was really the only person that was around any of Ted's stuff. And she was more family to Ted than, than just one of his actresses. Um, and I just told her, I said, God, I said, I feel horrible. Oh, that he was so sick. And that I didn't know that it was that close to the end. And I said, but it wasn't uncommon when I knew Ted was filming something. I didn't, I didn't bother him. You know, it was just kind of an unspoken thing that I knew he was busy and I wasn't, you know, and I didn't have anything to say. You know, I knew that once 10 Violent Women 2 was done, that I would buy it and watch it. And of course, enjoy it regardless of, you know, budgetary constraints or if it was four hours long. And that in, inevitably I would probably say, what's next, Ted? You know, in the hopes that he would say, oh, I have an idea. And, you know, then it would give me a, another project to do with Ted. Yeah. Um, but she was, was very, very kind to, to not only Ted, but also to, to kind of setting me and she didn't have to, but she kind of set me at ease and said, Corey, he was very fond of you and said that anybody that touched Ted's life, you know, that, that, that Ted touched their life, he knew that they touched him as well. And to know that him and I, you know, were worked on these things and had that kind of relationship for so long, the year and a half, you know, the year that we really didn't speak year and a half, you know, and it wasn't for any reason. It was just because eh, Ted was busy, but I didn't know that he was sick. Um, right. So she kind of set me at ease selfishly, you know, me being very selfish, but I had to take a, a step back and you helped me with the perspective on it as well. And just take a step back and go, dude, who ever thought that you would even, because I remember the first time that I went to Vegas, we had been communicating mm -hmm. and he and Shannon, my wife and I went out to Vegas and he invited me to his studio. I walked into that place, dude. And that was my, that was like what I envisioned my five, you know, when my, when my daughter's five and yeah. I take her to Disneyland, <laughs> like that first euphoric, you know, soaking that shit into your eyes right. and your brain, just seeing this stuff. I, I imagine that's the feeling because I walked in and there's one sheets of corpse grinders. And then I'm looking around at all these other things going, I don't know that movie. And I, and what is that? And he's got movieolas set up and props. And there's John Carradine's head. <laughs> Mark of the Astro zombies sitting there and he's got Astro zombies masks and one sheets and just, you know, lobby cards. And it's, it's like a, it was an exploitation drive-in movie paradise. And to, to just have that experience in and of itself and, and to be so welcomed in by Ted just for those few hours that I was there that first time, even to just get an email back from Ted and then to get to call him, I said, that would have been enough um, for me to, to say, I was, I knew Ted V. Michaels and I was friends with Ted V. Michaels just through an email correspondence or one visit to Vegas. But I wrote three movies for Ted. And when we were doing that, we talked 
for countless hours. And so I, I was kind of able to take solace in that, just knowing that, you know, maybe, just maybe, Ted knew how much I thought of him and how much he meant to me through me writing these scripts for him and expecting nothing other than the opportunity and the, the privilege to write movies for Ted B. Michaels. Um, you know, so, so selfishly, I, you know, I, I know that, uh, you know, I, we were square basically. Yeah. Was what it was, even though we didn't talk and it wasn't a falling out. There was, there was no reason for it, but it was just my guilt. And it was my own selfishness saying, God, you know, I wish I would have known that he was sick. And my, my wife said, you know what? Maybe he didn't tell you, um, just because it would have changed the dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, and a lot of people that are, that are going in that direction, you know, that, that have that knowledge want to shield the ones they love from having it because it does change relationships. It changed how people um, not only interact with them, you know, they all of a sudden they're on eggshells and yeah. everybody, you know, is constantly like, Oh, how are you doing? Are you okay? I'm sure he just wanted to be treated the way he always was treated. Yeah. And, and, he, and he had a circle of people out there that he was close to that could take care of him. And right. Think. Right. And th- what, what the hell am I going to do? Oh. Yeah. There's no need to worry you there. I mean, so, so I wouldn't, and this is, we had this conversation. I wouldn't worry. You know, I, I never would worry if someone decided to shield you from something like that. It wasn't because they don't care about you. It's no. because they wanted to keep the relationship that they had with you the way that they had it with you. And they want you to remember them that way. Exactly. And so. that's, and that was the one thing that I did. And like I said, it's all very selfish. And I know that at least I, uh, unlike uh, certain uh, people in higher places than me, I do have some self-awareness. Um, but uh, I, I did, I took solace in that knowing that for, you know, a span of, you know, well over a decade that we had a dynamic uh, little relationship going on and a very creative and, and, um, oh, how do I want to say it? You know, and fertile creative relationship, an open fertile creative relationship that was based on, you know, respect. And Ted never... He, you know, even through, you know, him being sick and things like that, you know, towards the end, you could, you know, I, I now that I look back and, and see some, some of the videos and he was trying to do some crowdfunding for 10 Violent Women too. He never lost it because the movies were the one thing that, that always kept him going. And to even be, because Ted had cancer and decided not to uh, do the treatments, which how can, you know, he was 87 years old. So how can you really blame him for that decision? Yeah. What are you going to extend at that point? Exactly. And, and for him to spend, you know, the last year being so sick from yeah. treatments and not being able to do any goddamn thing with his movies, that would have absolutely, you know, not just literally, but figuratively it would have killed him. Well, let's be honest. He, from the early sixties, he made a film every couple years. Yeah, absolutely. He never stopped for over 50 years. 
And regardless of the changes, you know, regardless of the switch over to video, regardless of his move to Las Vegas, regardless of the changing, um, you know, just the changing landscape of what movies are and what are expected and how they're made. Yeah, he never, he never, there was never a huge gap in anything he did. Herschel had a huge gap in movies. Oh, big time. Well, he dropped off the face of the map and then, you know, made junk mail and became a direct marketer and all this other stuff. But, but Ted never went away. No, Ted was always movies and Ted in, in his um, incredibly strange film show episode, Jonathan Ross says, how do you want to be remembered? And Ted just matter of factly didn't even skip a beat. Didn't take him a second. He goes, just as a filmmaker, as a guy that liked to tell stories. And that's what he was. And, and the one that really sums it up for Ted, like you said, with all the ideas that he had, the, the doll squad came out before the TV show, Charlie's angels. And if you look at the parallels between the two, you can't deny that Charlie's angels was ripped off completely from the doll squad. And the thing that, that lends the credence to that was that tourist Satana came to the premiere of the doll squad with Aaron Spelling, who was the producer of the doll squad. And, you know, they'd always ask Ted about it and say, Ted, did you ever think about suing? You could have got a lot of money out of this. I mean, it's obvious. And Ted goes, no, I can come up with ideas all day. (laughs) And on that note, I think we're going to um, move on to the second part of this episode in which we're going to play an interview that Corey did with Ted um, a number of years ago. And um, you'll get to hear what we've been talking about this entire time, the the enthusiasm. And uh, he is a storyteller. I mean, Ted likes to talk. And this interview is a wonderful slice of entertainment. I've listened to it many times. It's one of my favorite episodes of Astro Radio Z. So any, any closing thoughts, uh, anything you want to say, uh, put out there to the ether or, or to Ted, uh, before we, uh, let Ted speak about his own life. Cause it's essentially the episodes, essentially him telling his life story kind of. Yeah. From what I remember about the episode, cause I, I didn't listen to it since we did it. Um, is it, I just remember that we did a soup to nuts basically, um, interview. And the one thing that I will say um, and it's, I don't want to end it on a, on a negative note, right? Um, but I saw a lot of, you know, eulogies and, and, and things online to Ted. And the one thing that, because Ted didn't have a hateful, spiteful um, bone in his body, um, just wasn't who he was. He just, he didn't have time for it. Um, never negative, never anything. But the one thing that drove Ted Zerk was he found the term trash film to be dismissive and he found it to degrade who he was and what he did. He said, you can call the movies cheap. You can call them, you know, B movie. You can call them this, you can call them that. He said, but when you call my movies trash, you are basically just uh, saying they don't matter. You know what I mean? Saying that a year and a half that I spent doing this was worthless. He said, and it's not. He said, it's not to me. 
it's not to the people who enjoy the movies. It's not to all the people that came together to make these movies. So just, uh, you know, a word to everyone. You can think Ted's films are cheap. They're not your style. They're not this, they're not that. And you can say that about many guys that have made movies on this level or continue to make movies on this level. Don't call someone else's art trash because one man's trash is another man's treasure. And everything that Ted did to me was a treasure. And that was, that, that was basically the only time I ever heard Ted say anything negative when he just said that he hated it when people would call his movies trash. Because I think anybody that is a fan of fringe cinema knows that there were none ever and will never be any that were better, crazier, and more honest than Ted. And with that, let's go ahead and listen to Ted V. Michaels. Well, this sounds like it might be Corey. <laughs> Ted V. Michaels. Ladies and gentlemen, live and in living color, we have Ted B. Michaels joining Astro Radio Z this evening. Ted, thank you so much for taking time out and joining us. Wow. Okay. <laughs> thank you for having me. I didn't know I was taking time out. I just I enjoy doing this sort of thing. Oh, I appreciate it. And, of course, uh, for anybody who listens to uh, my show on, on Wednesday nights, they know – uh, about how often I, I sing the praises of, of Ted B. Michaels and a lot of our guests. A lot of times the conversation will turn to talking about Ted B. Michaels. So to have the man himself here this evening is uh, is a true honor, and I know the uh, the listeners are, uh, are are very very thrilled to be listening to you this evening on the program. Wow, Corey, you're part of what I do. <laughs> that's, I think that's very uh, that's good that we have this close contact. Absolutely. Now all of a sudden we're on the air. All of a sudden we're on the air now. Well, the one thing I've always said too is, you know, throughout all of the things that I've done, and I've I've had a very very wonderful life up to this point. Um, that the one thing that I'm most proud of, and the one thing that still um, really humbles me and blows my mind is the fact that not only uh, have I have I gotten to know you um, and visited with you many times over the years, but to get to collaborate with you um on your last uh, few pictures and now a new one of course is uh, one of the greatest if not the greatest accomplishment uh professionally and personally for me that I've ever had so um I guess we can kind of just uh start in uh for for those uh who who are not familiar uh with Ted um I I highly recommend that you uh at least do a Google search and and, and do your due diligence and find out about Ted but Ted how many years now is it that you've been making motion pictures? Well, it's 64 years since I first uh, put film to a little bit of movement and action and and uh, playing. And 64 years of making movies, and it's probably somewhere between a million and a million and a half camera setups in that length of time. And that doesn't include the time when I was a little kid developing film in the bathtub with these little tubes of developer and fixer that Kodak used to make available when uh, with, with a little box with a light bulb in it so you could put your 
paper that you want to print a picture on, uh, turn the light bulb <laughs> with the plugging it in the wall, and, and it sounds so primitive now. It's almost amusing. And and you've been a filmmaker who has really, like as you just said, you've seen it all. You've been from that stage. You've worked with the Moviola. You've cut actual 35-millimeter film yourself. And now, with the digital age, you're really embracing that. How has how have you kind of found the transition between working with 35, and of course that eats up a lot of money. That's a big budget. That's a huge undertaking, to now where you can have it digitally and, and really have all of the functionality, all of the features, and maybe even then some right in the palm of your hand. And you've seemed to embrace that. Well, I never thought at one time that I would get over the anger that the digital world brought upon us. You know, when you say a lot of film, how about tens upon tens upon tens of thousands of feet of film I put through moviolas and so on. And then when the digital domain came on here, uh, I guess it's been three years now when I closed my my major studio. Now my studio is in my in my place, but I gave away the moviola that put through hundreds of thousands of feet of film. I, I gave away the recorders that uh, recorded stuff. I transferred Nagra quarter-inch tape to 35-millimeter stripe. Uh, I never thought I would get over the bit of anger because I had to give that stuff away. Literally, I offered to put a lot of it, like my beta SP decks, uh, in people's trunks if they just take them away, and they didn't want them because now they've got a little camera as big as their fist or smaller and uh, <laughs> and making movies. And, of course, now what did I fall into? Oh, my lordy, lordy, lordy. <laughs> what I just did is I bought a little high-def camera it's no bigger than four fingers, four of my fingers, and I've got it and four lights that are driven by AAA batteries, LEDs that are as big as the center part of the palm of my hand, and I've devised a way to put um, two ways, either Velcro, a little tiny half-inch piece of, of Velcro to the light where I can stick it the other half anywhere I want, or a little piece of foam double-edged mounting tape, picture mounting tape, and I throw those lights on the wall. And these, this little camera is so hot, literally you can shoot in the dark. <clears throat> I can't believe it. And as you say, uh, editing, I'm editing with uh, Vegas Pro 11, and uh, you can do things that we never could have even imagined could be done outside of a lab uh, in Hollywood years and years ago. We wouldn't have dreamed it could ever be done any other way except drawing out where you wanted to put your dissolves even. The very simplest thing is a dissolve. And you had to count the frames, 16 frames to the foot, and you had to overlap those frames. And when you're cutting a negative, you had to, had to have it set so that the printer, who very often was a college guy or somebody who knew nothing about making movies, but he knew how to thread that film uh, into the printer, along with negatives, so they could put it. It's an entirely different world. But when I think now, I can change the size of an image with the make of a clouse, click of a mouse. <laughs> I can change the size, change the chroma, the luminance. I can change even the angle. I could tell. <laughs> you can do so much. It is just mind-boggling. And the cameras that I used for many, many years, like my big Mitchell, 
did took a five man crew, a part of my I don't mean a, a, a tire crew, I mean a camera crew. Five men on the camera, one to load, one to pull focus, one to slate, one to operate, one and and the D P which most of the time I always was in addition to directing and all that. But when I think about it, that camera weighed probably as much as my body. I mean, we're talking about a 150-pound camera. It took uh, uh, two strong guys to even carry it. And now you can put the camera that shoots high def. 1980 by 1020, you can put it in your shirt pocket. <laughs> I can't believe it. It's and you were always it. known as a guy who you did everything on the on on your films from writing you you would show up in the movies you would direct you would light you would edit and did you learn how to do all that just merely from kind of a functionality standpoint to say look if i can do all of these things a i can save money on a budget b i don't have to rely on people was it done out of necessity or was it done just because you wanted to kind of have your fingers in everything well, to illustrate better the word necessity, let me put it this way, and it's something I've always said when people would ask this question. If you cannot afford to hire somebody who can do a better job than you can do, then do it yourself. If you can't hire somebody who do a better job than you can, then do it yourself. And I've always I've lived by that since I was a teenager. When I started everything, dreaming up a story out of nothing, very often I'd write down the entire plot and the synopsis on the back of an envelope. I mean, a regular mailing envelope, and that was my, <laughs> and that was my script because I'd make it up as I went. Of course, now we're talking about a lot of years ago. Those were the movies I did before I did Strike Me Deadly. I I spent nine or ten years making those things just to learn. And Strike Me Deadly, of course, was the first movie that, like you said, you made available uh, to the world, that you felt comfortable um, in your skills and what you had learned, and Strike Me Deadly uh, was the first movie. What year was Strike Me Deadly, and where did kind of the idea for Strike Me Deadly come from? Actually, I spent uh, nine years in Bend, Oregon. I had said I was going to devote ten years of my life making these little movies as often as I could using community theater people. I was a director of the community theater and a lot of friends there. And uh, so I decided I would spend 10 years making these little movies to learn. And then at the end of that 10 years, I was going to decide whether I wanted to make a life in film or give it up. Now, I probably would have been a rich man doing something other than making film, <laughs> but I chose making film. And, um, so the the nine or ten years I spent making those little movies, uh, during that time I, I scouted almost every conceivable location within a 50-mile radius of Bend, Oregon. All the waterfalls, the caves, the mountain streams, the rivers, the lakes, uh, the ski area, you name it. And I had done uh, a, a tremendous amount of research on what it would take to shoot in these locations. What about power? What would I use for lights? You didn't have LEDs then. You had lights that were, uh, as how to describe it, as big as a uh, a turkey, a big <laughs> full-grown turkey. That was the size of your light. And you had to have a generator or something to make it work. And now, like I said, I can I can stuff four lights in my in my pants and shirt pockets that are driven by little three 
triple uh, A batteries that give me all the light that I need. Well, then, after scouting all these locations, then I I had in mind uh, that I would write, uh, I would give it a shot for my first theatrical 35 millimeter feature. And it was hell to pay to get any help. You know, I I sold everything I had, my house, my car, my my saxophone, everything I could even to buy enough Rostock uh, to get started. And um, and then I utilized all those years that I had scouted all those locations, you know, uh, like 100 miles across, 50-mile radius in all directions. Didn't even limit it to 50 miles, but within those 50 miles, I had everything I ever needed in the way of a location. So I used live locations. I had a, a, a little old Dodge van that was hollowed out. It was a transport van. And I had hooks and shelves all over the inside. I hung my cables on it. I, I had a little shelf where somebody could sit inside and, and uh, uh, record on the recorder. I just, uh, that was the, the way to go on uh, on that movie like I had done for the years previous was just playing. Then when I made that, uh, Strike Me Deadly, I wrote it in 59, filmed it in 60, and it gave a lot of people a good start in the business. I don't know how many people I started on that, but um, um, the, uh, the the girl that played the leading lady in, uh, uh, what the heck was those with the girls? Uh, all of a sudden, the names escaped me, but I'll think of it. But Janine Riley, Petticoat Junction. In any event, uh, she took the, the the work print of the movie even before I got it released uh, over to I think it was Universal and then uh, won the part of um, Billy Joe in uh, Petticoat Junction and so on. Almost all the people uh, got various parts. But the same as uh, just to jump forward a little bit, a few years later in the Black Klansman, all the guys that had major parts, all the the Black Americans who had never had really an opportunity. After doing the Black Klansman, they all got leading parts. Some got their own shows uh, just on the basis of that movie alone. But in any event, it took a long time. I was trying to find somebody who would help pick up the laboratory bill alone. Forget the cost of making it because I brought, uh, what, three people from Hollywood, uh, brought them to Bend. We had to put up uh, uh, the guys in one house and the girls in another house and somebody to cook uh, in the girls' house so everybody would get together before we go shoot, and we'd all have breakfast, and then we had box lunches we made ourselves. We certainly couldn't afford a caterer. You know, the grocery store was <laughs> was our source of food. But uh, those were experiences you never forget. And you and also, never... in Strike Me Deadly, you used a, a really kind of an interesting uh, way to get some, some really neat dolly shots in the movie, and that just came out of uh, a little bit of ingenuity. Well, you know what? A, a, a dear old friend of many years who just recently, for health reasons or whatever, who was very, very uh, uh, much involved in uh, video, not film, but video. I mean, he did the national uh, rodeo finals uh, commercials. He was so good. Anyway, he moved to Bend, Oregon, and he told me today something that I hadn't heard in years and years. Now, we're talking about uh, close to, what is it, uh, uh, 1950. We're talking almost 55 years ago. And he remembered that I had my camera mounted in the doorway of the double doors on my Volkswagen van. I almost flattened the tires so we could run on <laughs> on the bumpy gravel road. And it looks as smooth as glass. 
And he said, I'll never forget watching you let the air out of the tires out of your Volkswagen. So they were almost flat, and yet you got the most beautiful dolly shots. And that's true. <laughs> I never forgot that either. That was an experience. That was a, a good experiment that paid off. And, and you briefly mentioned the Black Klansman. And, I mean, coming from a movie like Strike Me Deadly, which was an action-adventure type of movie, to something as topical and socially conscious as the Black Klansman. And that's the one thing that I think anybody who's uh, followed the career of Ted B. Michaels has noticed, is that you make everything. You make all kinds of movies. What was the genesis behind making the Black Klansman at a very, very pivotal time, uh, of course, in American history? In 1966, you made that movie, and it, it had to be very difficult and controversial at the time. Well, actually, it was during the Watts riots, but, you know, I was always sympathetic uh, to the black Americans who would come into my offices uh, saying, you know, they never get a part of anything because there's never a part for them, uh, female and male, and especially uh, the older females and the older guys, too. But uh, I, I had a, a sympathetic, uh, a very heartfelt feelings toward uh, them and their aspirations, and so... I actually did not ever pursue controversial subjects. I don't really, uh, if there is any controversy in any of my movies, it's it's accidental or it's part of the story. But Joe Solomon was a distributor, and he had this idea of, of really coming up with something unusual and different. So we literally were almost filming right at the same time as the, the riots were taking place in L.A. People were, you know, burning storefronts, everything else, so... But at the same time, I had told Joe that I would not make that movie unless we made everybody look good. I mean, everybody had to look good. The people who were bigoted had to turn around and become unbigoted, had to become uh, warmly appreciative of all the efforts of everyone in the movie. In other words, if it, if it had a good cause, then I would make it. And so we did. We We, we did put a good cause to it, but... Who was it? Was it Chris Curry said everybody everybody ought to see Ted Michaels' movie The Black Klansman? Well, I don't own it. I made it. I made it for Joe. I own part of it, but like always, that doesn't mean much in Hollywood. I, at one time, I think I own parts of half the movies in Hollywood from working on them, finishing movies for people who didn't finish. You know, because I, I had acquired my own cameras and Nagar and lights and, and a truck, and two vans and all that. So I ended up finishing a lot of people's movies that I don't even have my name on them. I didn't didn't seem important at the time that I put my name on on so many credits. I had enough credits. So <laughs> anyway, that uh, that led us on to bigger, better, more ambitious undertakings. Uh, uh, strike me dead. You know, a lot of times I've made uh, movies where no one in the cast or crew or maybe with one exception, had ever been involved in a production before, in front of or behind the camera. I mean, there were times when I had to teach the people that were willing to help and give me their time how to read the, uh, the view meters on a Nagra or a recorder. I had to teach them how to put a filter and when to put a filter over the lens when we were shooting day for night or what have you, even shooting... Uh, uh, exterior when you're shooting film that requires the 85 filter and then of course I had to buy filters for every size lens because I didn't have at the time a camera that used 
one single mat box with four by five inch filters of all sorts. I had to get uh, the adapters for every single lens, and that meant I had to have a complete range of filters for each and every lens. So that gave me a, a box of filters that <laughs> we had 50 filters in it. <laughs> anyway, those were the days, but now I have just uh, uh, gone. I thought I had one credit card almost paid off. It was. It was just so close. I'm talking about two months from being paid off. And now, guess what? I bought that, that HDR uh, CX-160 that practically shoots in the dark. It's a little Sony Handicam. And uh, I'm looking at that little bag down in front of me right now that, that uh, Corey, the story that you and I are creating, everything in that little bag is all I need. There are literally five lights in it. The little, And when I say lights, I mean they're smaller than the palm of my hand. The ones that are the most powerful, they're brilliant, are about two-thirds of the size of the palm only, the palm of my hand. But each of them has 24 LEDs. And you would not believe when you see that brilliant, fierce light that they're they're driven by three AAA cells. AAA batteries. <laughs> it's incredible. And I think we used to have a, have a truck, even when we shot 10 Vala Women, I had to, I had to rent a truck that hauled a trailer that hauled a generator that we could string cables from and light inside that jail, which was long closed by the Los Angeles uh, uh, City, you know, the police department. It was a closed jail. But the fact of the matter now, I could walk in with this little bag. It's a foot, little leather bag. You get them at Walgreens, you know, uh, for 12 bucks. They're they're about six inches high, six inches wide, and twelve inches long. <laughs> and therein lies my entire production gear. It's almost um, it is. I have to look at it and laugh. I just giggle every time I see it. I, I'm looking right at it right now. And in it, I've got everything from Velcro to attach those lights anywhere I want them. I've got double-sided um, uh, foam masking tape. <laughs> <laughs> I can stick on those lights. I can stick them anywhere, right? If somebody's next to a TV, I clamp one of those little lights on the TV. I've got a little bitty light on a little uh, six-inch bar, sliding bar on my on my camera. A little light that gives me a, a good front fill, what we used to call an OB light on, on the big cameras. We had to stick a very powerful. It was never less than a 150-watt uh, mushroom, and that was used. Uh, to light a face so you can see distinct features on a face. And that's in addition to key lights, fill lights, background lights, backlighting, hair light, rim lighting. Uh, and then we even got into eye lights and necktie lights and, and scrims that if a necktie was too hot, we'd scrim it down. Of course, it narrowed down the ability of the actor to move around because you couldn't follow him with those scrims that were made of black cheesecloth. <laughs> I think of all that stuff now. And, and of course, even when I uh, had to move out of that one studio I had for, what, 17 years, it just um, it got to be too big. I must have had um, about 50 boxes that were three feet high and two feet square crammed with bits and pieces of film, positive trims from the movies, Trims for maybe a half a dozen movies, 
uh, mag stock that are just as wide as the film, except that they're uh, clear flat. Uh, they're clear um, uh, uh, the a clear celluloid with a little strip that is similar to um, a, a quarter inch uh, recording tape. Uh, on that, and that matched the size of the 35 millimeter film. So when you put the two, put them through the moviola, you'd have uh, one for one. In other words, a foot of sound stripe uh, was identical to 16 frames of visual images on the film. So and now, of course, there are a lot of things that are identical. You have a time code. Okay, we got time codes on these little digital cameras now. But guess what we had on film? Every 16 frames on 35. We had a number that was usually about 12 digits long, like a CBX 2 by uh, 2 19162323 w <laughs> And we had a number like that. Uh, I'm sorry, I had to have a 1. And then the next 16 frames, it would have the same big number and a 2 after it. And then the next 16 frames after that would have the number 3 after it, designating another foot, another foot, another foot. But anytime you wanted to make an effect that took place within the confines of the first frame to the 16th frame, you had to designate it with a, what we, it's, it's similar to a needle, it's a steel punch, and uh, it wasn't even a punch, it's a steel scribe, and you'd scratch on the image, on the negative, you started doing it on your work picture, then you'd also duplicate it on the negative, so that anyone who put it in a printer would know which frame you're starting the effect on. And that's important. For example, if you take a, a, a punch with a fist, you know, a swing in your arm, three frames or four frames can mean you either miss the punch or you or you catch it. And so you had to be dead, you're deadly accurate. So you couldn't say in this one particular foot. You had to say what particular foot and which of the 16 frames in that particular foot are you going to use? <laughs> so what a whole, what an entirely different world, entirely different world. And you had mentioned the studio um, in Las Vegas, and I was fortunate enough to be able to visit you uh, a few times at the studio. And really, in all honesty, that should have been made into a film museum. Well, you know, I tried a lot, very hard to get a museum going. I tried to get the film commission. I tried to get the uh, interest from the chamber. I tried to get an interest from uh, people who were beginning to move here and uh, rent out lights and so on. But I could not muster. I couldn't get the help. And, and it was a little, even though it was directly across the freeway from Mandalay Bay, which is, you know, right uh, um, right in the heart of Vegas, Mandalay mm-hmm. Bay and uh, the, um, uh, the the tower, uh, the pyramid. Uh, when you think about how close I was to those places, we're talking about a stone's throw. Yeah. That we were still on the opposite side of the freeway and a little more difficult to get to. But it was also laid out so there was not really what you would call a storefront. And I think for a museum... Uh, you'd have to have uh, something other than a walk-through door. Now, it did have a glass front, you know, had a window, but it just wasn't laid out. And I so I tried to get uh, over the Liberace Plaza, which is, uh, uh, I think it's on Flamingo, not far from uh, Paradise here or Spencer. And I went to see these people, and uh, they had rooms, you know, space for rent. 
but it was $4,000 for a space that was even big enough to put the stuff that I would have put in there. That was not big. That was only, you know, like uh, maybe 40 feet deep and 75 feet wide. $4,000, but they talked me out. I, I may have gone ahead anyway, but they said, by the time you're through, you're going to buy ways to display everything. You're going to pay rent, and just because you're putting it there, that alone is not going to bring in enough money for you to have it, and you're going to have to have some help. You cannot run it all alone. So literally the people at Liberace Plaza uh, talked me out of it, and I think they did this, they did a good thing. Uh, talking me out of it because I can see, you know, how difficult it was to even think of getting it started. But with businesses failing, at the time that I was looking, they were starting to fail left and right. I would have really been in a bad way trying to move everything. But I have in my collections, I don't even want to call them collections, in my gatherings, I've got a three-car garage that is crammed, you name it. I've got... Uh, little eight millimeter projectors. I've got high eight, <laughs> little high eight cameras. I've got uh, uh, a high eight projectors, sixteen projectors, Bell and Howells, some that are, have optical and magnetic sound capacity. You switch back and forth. I've got so much stuff. I still could have a museum, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, not possible anymore. And you not probably, possible. I would think that you probably also throughout the years because. The one thing that, uh, you know, a lot of people who I talk to, um, and, and, and when we talk about the movies and the career of Ted V. Michaels, they always remember the great campaigns that you had, uh, the spend a night in the grave, um, you know, all, all of these great things where, where you had to have a nurse who would take blood pressure and you would have to prove that you were of sound mind and body before you were admitted into the theater is are these some of the things in your collection and what do you remember about some of these campaigns where these come up uh, did you come up with these did the distributor come up with these well i was the distributor all of my movies i was a distributor so it was on me one of the reasons i never got any money any financing is because anyone you would go to would want control of your movie when you finished it for example, if a movie costs 400000 and they give you 100000 to help, they want to take absolute control of the distribution of that movie. And if you ever see any of your 300000 after they get their 100000 you'd be very lucky. So, as a distributor, I had to create those campaigns. Now, it wasn't without some input, because I had people working for me uh, in my offices at Columbia Studios and at Goldwyn, and uh, I've also had a stint at Universal Studios and so on. But you're renters there. You're, you're not financed by the studio. You're, you're a renter. Uh, so you rent the facility. You rent the rooms. You rent the uh, screening room. You rent the theaters for the screening of your movies when you want to show it to theater chain operators and so on. So, but yes, I had to come up with all the zany ideas. But that wasn't too tough for me because... As a little kid, I grew up trying to get neighborhood kids to come to my magic show that I had in the backyard. And the first ones were when I was seven years old. My magic show only cost my neighbor, uh, neighborhood kids two pins, two <laughs> safety, safety pins. That was because I had to charge them something for them to make them think they were getting something. Then we finally went to two pennies. And then, and then of course, uh, <laughs> very early when I still was not even yet a teenager, 
I was doing Magic Chosen. Of course, I was playing my accordion for when I was 13 and 14. I was playing my accordion with my accordion teacher with dances and uh, for dances. And of course, he he took the lead, and I had I had learned the the polkas and all that, so that I I played along with the drummer, the piano player, my teacher who came from Italy as an accordion teacher, and myself. We had four-piece outfit, and that was going on through high school days. So anyway, um, what I did learn very early in whatever I was doing is that you can build a better mousetrap, but if you can't tell the world that you've got a better mousetrap, nobody will even know about it, much less see it or find it. And the same as a movie. You may make the finest movie in the world, but if you can't get people's attention, if you can't tell the people that you've got it and that they must see it, and you've got to think of some ways to get their attention, and that's what I did. And I still have all of those things. I still have, I've never made duplicates of anything. I've never made reprints of that. I still probably have a hundred or so left. They're on my website, I think, for five bucks um, and signed, autographed by myself. Anyway, they're they're the original, um, the uh, passport, so to speak, that, no one could get into the theater to see the final dimension in shock unless they signed that certificate of assurance to me, the creator of the movie, that they were of sound mind and good health and that they wouldn't die of fright. <laughs> but to be sure, to be sure, they'd be taken care of. That's why we had the blood pressure kits in the hands of the nurses in the lobby and, and uh, ambulance sometimes uh, spinning lights outside when we could afford to do that and so on. But I had to dream up those things. But... Growing up as a teenager, I had to do those things because I used to uh, take on the obligation of renting one of the public school facilities, in other words, the theater. And at that time, I think it used to cost an average of $35 to rent a high school auditorium in a public school. But you you had to pay the $35 no matter what. If two people showed up or 200 if you filled the auditorium, you were lucky. And then I think the fee was something anywhere from $0.10 cents to $0.50, cents, depending on the exact time of it. But I had to put posters that I had to draw, create, and have printed. Mimeographs, is, <laughs> I don't even think there was any such thing as Xerox then. It had to be printed. And, uh, and you, the only color you had was one color ink on a different color paper. And I would post those on telephone poles. Uh, any way I could get them out there. At one time in a little city just outside of, of uh, Portland, Oregon, um, where I did grow up, uh, uh, I even made a deal with a local newspaper that uh, in that little city, I think it was the Dalles, which is just a little bit east, like 60 miles east of Portland. And for my show there, I had made an arrangement with the newspaper to put a flyer about my show, uh, the day and date and how much, and so it went out in every newspaper. But it was tough to get an audience. You know, you you have to get the word out, and that's the one thing that is a problem with with hundreds of thousands of young people now making movies. And of course, there is an advantage. Instead of tele- telephone poles, they've got Facebook and Twitter, <laughs> whatever and whatever else. You know, so they they are the equivalent now of the old telephone pole uh, ads that I used to have to do. And uh, wait for people to walk by to see your ads instead of on a computer where they can go to Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> it's all funny when I think about it now, but it's all true. 
And it seems now that even with uh, all of these different social media sites, it does seem like a lot of filmmakers can kind of find their niche, but it also seems like it's harder now than ever uh, for some people to get the word out and, and, and kind of thinking about some of the you know, the campaigns that you had, and of course with having the, the sirens out front and the nurses in the lobby, that's something that you just don't see anymore. But you do see a lot uh, of money spent on marketing budgets and things like that. Was that something for you that that was difficult to find, or, or was it just a matter of, you know, as it always has been with you, let's get creative. We don't have millions of dollars to spend on getting this information out, so let's come up with a sensational campaign to get people in the theater. Well, I'll tell you, you had to come up with something, because in order to advertise on radio, television was too expensive in the earlier years, and newspaper advertising uh, was tough. And, of course, you always had sometimes, I won't I won't call it always, but there was somebody in a theater who always found a way to get your money. They would bill me for the national ad price for a, a newspaper block ad. And, of course, they, because they had a yearly contract, they had that ad for maybe one-third of that price. But I had to pay the price of the national uh, uh, the national average for that size ad. But I'll tell you the big difference in now and then. Now, and this happened now for many years, not just now, but for many years, the studios, what they call a blanket uh, promo campaign, they cover the United States, they cover the world. And at the time when I was doing Corpse Grinders and Doll Squad and Ten Ball of Women and Blood Orgy and Your Own Gold Boots and all. It was a matter of doing it on a city at a time. Uh, if we opened, uh, for example, in Dallas, Dallas and Fort Worth, I took Leslie McRae, our little leading lady, winner of 30 beauty contests. Uh, uh, we went into Dallas and made uh, meetings with the press. I had to buy the booze and everything. <laughs> You know, that's the way we got the word out, you know, but it was a matter of going, uh, and at the time also as a distributor, I only could buy so many prints of a movie. Like I started out with Corpse Grinders with five prints, then I bought five more, and then 15, and then 25, and then it hit, and then 50, and then 150. Now think about it now. Every young person with a computer who can print a disc, discs are about 35 cents from one of the wholesale stores. 35 cents and there's their movie. I'm going to repeat that. 35 cents. <laughs> the prints the of my movies were $1,600. 1600 Just for a copy of what now everybody can put on a 35-cent disc. So that's how much it's changed. So then when we're talking about these... these uh, what we used to call any of the advertising things a campaign. We had to do press books. We had to send them out to the theaters. When the theater was interested in your movie, they'd request all the information. They'd want color press books that you'd spend, have to spend a lot of money describing the movie, who's in it, what it's all about, photographs of it, ad slicks, which were copies of the various sizes of ads that they would put in on a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday Sunday, Monday night ads was, you know, in other words, we gave them what we called ad slicks. They were the the uh, the ad itself that went into the newspaper, but in preordained sizes. So 
on a Friday night, it was the biggest uh, slick, the biggest uh, card, uh, the biggest uh, ad you'd put in. And then opening night, you know, very often was a Wednesday. Uh, you didn't really overdo the money. Thursday was bigger. Friday was big. Saturday night was almost as big. Sunday got smaller. Monday and Tuesday, very small. Ads. So you had to have a different size of ad for every one of those days. Because uh, I had to pay, in most cases, they either charged the entire cost of the ad in the newspaper to me, or we did what we called co-op advertising. As a distributor, I had to pay half of whatever the theater would spend on advertising. But I had to supply the material. I had to make the trailers and give them the trailers. I had to come up with gimmicks, ideas. Uh, on the first Astro Zombies, I bought little Astro Zombie heads on a little plastic neck chain. Uh, I think that, I don't know where, I don't think there was China trade then, but wherever they came from, they cost me six cents a piece. And uh, the theaters would buy them for whatever they cost me. If they ordered 200 of those, then they had to uh, send me the money or, or include it in whatever was left after they took their advertising. Anyway, and then we never did find a gimmick to give away uh, anything to the people that came in to Corpse Grinders. That's why I came up with the idea of that uh, certificate of assurance, of which I still have some. But again, I started to say everything I have is still the original. I've never, never done repeats of anything. I've never made a repeat of a one sheet, a theatrical one sheet. I found some more Doll Squad one sheets. Those have been going in private collectors' hands for as much as three and four hundred dollars. But I found another handful of them, so I have them in my Chad um, uh, B. Michael's website uh, for one and a quarter. But I think they've all sold for closer to two hundred and on up. The original Astro Zombie poster that I had created using the help of a college kid drawing some of the art, the very first original, long before the one that uh, that um, uh, you see, you know, put out in the uh, Astro Zombie. Uh, VHS and, and DVDs, uh, the original, those are so unavailable because I only printed a thousand for the entire world. And I had to send those to national screen, except a few that I would keep so I could deal directly with theaters. National screen then would sell them to the theaters and, and in many cases rent them for like a dollar and then they would the theater would return them. So sometimes they got used over and over. That's the way they did with trailers. That's why you see the trailer on Strike Me Deadly is a minute and 43 seconds because that's all National Screen would pay for. If you're going to give them a master a negative for a trailer, they will pay for a, a, a minute and 43 seconds. Not two minutes, a minute and 43 seconds. Now, remember, we're going at a foot and a half a second. So if you added 30 seconds, you're adding 45 feet of film at an average of how much? 50 cents a foot in color? That was about right. So the trailers cost a fortune. And then in these trailers that are still kicking around here and there, every trailer that's been made, every print that's been made of any of my movies, I paid for. That's why I have no money. <laughs> I paid for them. They get, they get worn out, thrown away, discarded, stolen from docks uh, behind the theater before they get picked up, uh, uh, you know, all that sort of thing. So... Every print of every movie that I've ever made was paid for by myself. Nobody ever paid for any prints. 
That goes for anything, even the one I did, the triple release of Undertaker and his pals and the Embalmer. I rented the first few prints of the Embalmer from uh, Allied Artists and uh, had to pay them a royalty to be able to use it. But then I had to end up buying a print to match every print of Corpse Grinders. Now, remember, we were talking about roughly between fifteen and $1,600 a print. And you're talking about 100 copies? And we're talking about 100 copies of three different movies that became part of the triple bill. So I had to have, we even went up to 150 copies. Now, when you think about it, 450 copies at $1,500 a piece. That's what it took to play the theater date. So what a difference between 35 cents. Well, and, and now, yeah, like you said, you know, 35 cents to put it on a DVD versus, you know, $1,000 for a print. Now, that's an entire budget on a film is $1,000. Uh, would you believe, as of now, with the new camera I bought, that I'm right uh, in my, even just going in, I'm 1020 bucks already. <laughs> I don't like it when people say no, no budget. That isn't even started to film or edit yet. That's just getting prepared. <laughs> yeah. The work hasn't get even begun yet. No, you and I are still working on the screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> we do have people. I, I do want to mention two things that I don't want to forget. I'm going to be very open, and I will share anything I get on my website or email or whatever with you as my co-writer um, of the screenplay of this new movie, Paranormal Extremes, Text Messages from the Dead. Now, the fellow... Uh, uh, Phil that uh, said why don't you call it text messages from the dead I, what a great title to use it so <laughs> <laughs> anyway what was his last name all of a sudden Phil Hopkins. Oh, my. Hopkins yeah anyway so we'll give him credit for helping des- uh, come up with a creative title and that's all he wants anyway so I wanted to put word out to anybody listening that I'm going to welcome uh, people's ideas if we use their idea will give them a screen credit or if they want to film a three or four minute segment with a decent high def camera, a decent camera not a VHS, a decent camera and film a story put together about with the theme as paranormal activities of some sort. If we use it they will get the the screen credit also for for their segment being done. Now so far I've mentioned it to three different filmmakers, and they want to do it. They want to be a part of it. They want to be a part of Michael's movie. So anyway, so we're putting that out there. The other thing I want to mention is that I just got word, it has not been two hours ago, that the book that Chris Curry wrote about Ted Michael's movie, Escapades, he's called, uh, it is called, um, um, oh, God. Oh, that's Film Alchemy. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Film Alchemy, the Independent Cinema of Ted B. Michaels. Film Alchemy, the Independent Cinema of Ted B. Michaels. Now, the publisher has just announced to him that they are coming out in the, in the first quarter of next this coming year. In other words, not many months away. Half the cost, instead of $50, it'll be like twenty four ninety five for a soft, soft cover uh, issue of the same, uh, same book. And I know... But a lot of people would would have bought the book if it weren't fifty bucks. That's right. just too much for the average person that you know has 
doesn't have that much to spend for a lot of things, let alone a book on Ted Michaels. So uh, reducing it, I wish they could reduce it even 49, but but 24.95, I think is going to open up uh, a new a way for people to acquire that book. Film Alchemy, the independent cinema of Ted B. Michaels. But I wanted to mention those two things, the book and then also the fact that we will be welcoming and uh, anyone who wants to make a professional approach so that it would fit in our movie, uh, paranormal activities that are credible, that are credible, that will play, that uh, are not a bunch of foolhardy attempts. Um, I don't want to spend months looking at people's stuff and say, gosh, that's nothing I could put in one of my movies, you know. We, you know. So if anyone wants to take a, a professional approach towards it, uh, we would be happy to work it into our screenplay. Right, Corey? <laughs> Absolutely. And that was one other thing, too, talking about um, one of the, your last movie, which was uh, Astro Zombies M4. And that movie, you kind of did a little bit of the same thing. You had a huge grand scale on that one with footage from all across the world. How did that idea kind of come about to, to gather well, up all these different footage from all these different places? Well, the fact of the matter is, it came to me that so many people would write to me and say, look, I know you can't pay me, but I will come to Las Vegas and work for you in a movie because I want to work with you and I'll do it at my own expense. I'll live in a hotel and pay my own food and everything just to be able to either act in or work in one of your movies. So that became a little bit cumbersome because in two or three movies before, like Astro Zombies M3 and um, a Dimension in Fear and then uh, Demon Haunt, uh, we had people uh, you know, wanting to come in. So we let people come in, but I didn't like the idea of them having to buy their own food and pay their own hotel. So I attempted to, you know, to find enough money to pay that for them for two weeks at a time or whatever. The difficulty comes when you don't have a schedule since you're not being able to pay for locations at casinos or whatever. When it comes time to shoot, you have to see what you can put together when it's convenient to shoot, when your people are available and the location is available and so on. So it doesn't pay to bring a person in to the city and sit on their duff waiting for the time that they can participate in a shoot. So the thought then occurred to me, why not let them shoot something in their own hometown? Like we had um, Ami, my friend Ami, in uh, in uh, Osaka, shoot in Japan. We had uh, Ari Richards in Australia. We had Martin um, in uh, Martin Schmidt in Germany and Berlin shooting all that. We had uh, uh, Martin also went to London and shot a whole sequence. And Martin, by the way, is making um, uh, a, a German Astro Zombies right now. He flew in, and I even had a little bit of a part with Donna Hamblin, who is in Astro Zombies M3 and in uh, Demon Haunt, and uh, also in um, what the heck was the other one she was in? Uh, not Dimension of Fear, might have been Anyway. So he filmed us, and and we will be included in his his German Astro Zombie movie. We don't know what he's going to call it yet. And then today, early, I was advised that we have in my I have to get it from my Dropbox the trailer, the preliminary trailer 
of Corpse Grinders 3. Oh, my God. been filmed in, in uh, uh, Barcelona. And it should be ready in another two to three months. I'll have it ready for market. But I will only be able to handle the United States alone. And then for my friends Gary Lester and Richard Lester. Richard is associate producer on the last two movies with me. And, and Gary Lester, who did the CGI for Astro Zombies M4, did a marvelous job working so hard for how many months doing all those explosions and so on. Well, they have created a movie, and they're putting the United States release in my hands. And it's called Friends, or Forever Friends, and it's about pets. And it doesn't, they've covered every sort of a pet you can imagine, from every sort of a parakeet, a bird, a rabbit, uh, turtles, uh, uh, horses, every known pet, a three-legged dog. I mean, just pets that, that love you with everything they have, and you love them. And that's what that movie is about. And I should have that in my hands by the end of the year. So we've got a lot of things going the new project, Paranormal Extremes, Text Messages from the Dead, is in the scripting form by yourself and myself. And then Corpse Grinders 3 is ready in 90 days or less um, from Barcelona, uh, but available here in the country through my website. It will be. And the same as Forever Friends, it will be on my website. And so we've got uh, three projects right off the bat going Going strong. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you never, never stop. That's the one thing um, that, that – and, and I think you and I had talked about um, an article that a newspaper in uh, Las Vegas had done. And I think that was kind of the thrust of the article is that Ted V. Michaels doesn't stop. You've always kept going. You're always moving. You're always thinking about the next project, the next picture. And I know when we first um, started to talk, um, you were just – um, getting through, I think it was out at the time, but it was Heart of a Boy, which was a bit of a departure from where you were at because, you know, back in the late 60s, early 70s with Astro Zombies and Corpse Grinders, of course, everybody knows and loves those movies. Um, getting into the early 2000s, you had revisited those movies. It was almost a 30 year gap in between an Astro Zombies 1 and 2 and a Corpse Grinders 1 and 2. What made you go back at that point? and want to uh, kind of revisit those stories. Had you had those stories for a while? Because I remember um, on the, uh, and, and this was my introduction, I think this was probably a lot of people's um, introduction to the man, uh, Ted B. Michaels, and that was the Incredibly Strange Film Show with Jonathan Ross. And I remember one of the scenes you had um, a lot of scripts that were laid out. Um, Attack of the Lady Ninjas was one of them, and also um, Corpse Grinders 2. And this was back in 1988, and then, of course, Corpse Grinders 2, I believe, was 2001 or 2. Um, was was that script the one that basically you used for the sequel? Did it go through a lot of changes? What made you go back and revisit those movies so many years later? Actually, when you have enjoyed the successes of a movie like the original Corpse Grinders, which brought in a greater return to me of any movie that I have ever made, bar none. But again, in order to get it on, I gave away approximately 85% of the movie, which is sad, but even with the remainder, I kept seven people working at my studio offices for three years. I kept their payroll going, uh, even even helped somebody, uh, gave them the money to open a little 88 cent store on Lancashire Boulevard, just outside Hollywood, in North Hollywood. 
I put up close to $30,000 to get uh, Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things off the ground as executive producer. Um, I just had a lot. But what you do when you think about the next movie you want to make, what is the most popular one? Now, when you think of the attendance in theaters, the grosses that are made, you think, well, why gamble on something that's unknown when you can choose a theme that paid off well already, try to make another that will hit that same uh, hit that same high. Very seldom does it ever hit the same high, but it's a, it's a gamble. So even when I um, promoted doing Corpse Grinders 2, I did not have a script. I just had the idea, and I put it on uh, that, uh, uh, as I always did, I put it on a colored jacket. Uh, I think inside of the jacket I had the original Corpse Grinders 1 script, but I had um, only thoughts about it, and then as it developed, I came up with some basic ideas for Corpse 2, and then as time went on, I thought we had the money to do it once, um, and I sat down and did a, a rough screenplay, and then it was still two years later, three years later, uh, we still didn't have the money in place, even though it was committed to me several times and reinforced along the way, but it never did come through. So, and then that's when I sat down and said, the hell with it, I'm not going to wait anymore. The time frames that you see between my movies were only time spent trying to find a way to pay for them. Only spent trying to raise enough money to do it. That's what any space, but I always did want to do something different. I never did want to do what anyone else was doing. If everybody was making a biker movie, I wouldn't do a biker movie at gunpoint. I wouldn't. Because if everyone's doing it, that's not me. I'm not I'm not everyone. I'm not going to do what everyone is doing. Now, whether that's good, whether that's bad is, you know, who knows. But, but uh, for me, I, I did not want to be doing exactly what everyone else is doing. How can you stand out if everyone's doing it? So and I, I knew I had to stand out because I didn't have anyone to promote my movies other than myself as distributor because I was a distributor. So I had to I had to come up with something that was uh, marketable. So I hope that answers some of your questions. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. And you know, and another thing about um, when you and I have talked that you've said is that you don't really watch a lot of current films or, you know, genre films or, 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 you know, independent films, underground movies, anything like that. Because you said, basically, at one point, you didn't really, A, you don't have time. Uh, we know that. But B, it, it, is it something where you don't want to really be influenced by seeing anybody's, uh, you know, what, what people are up to? You don't want to be influenced by what's going on and you want to continue doing just what your heart, um, you know, and, and what your mind kind of tells you to do? What is the reasoning kind of behind that? Well, I think you've said a couple of the reasons. One, I don't have time. I'm a busy guy. I fell asleep at quarter to five this morning. That's why I don't like any phone calls before 10.30 or 11. you got to rest a little bit sometimes. And uh, even during that five hours, I'm not really sleeping hard. I'm up too often. When you get to be married, you don't sleep more than an hour and a half. A REM sleep at a time when you're lucky. The other thing is I, I, I see movies. I saw one in theater. English patient when it came out about 10 years ago. I, w I went to a theater and saw that. <laughs> That's how often I see a movie in a theater. I don't think I've seen a movie in a theater since. 
I do enjoy Sunday mornings uh, uh, with Shanti, who's been a great support for me in all of my movie making. But we love to watch Rick Steves traveling Europe because when we were fortunate, when I was fortunate enough to to be able to go uh, to Paris and London and Rome and so on with Shanti, we we saw a lot of the places that Rick Steves goes to. And uh, every time I see, oh, yeah, I was standing on that stairway. Oh, I remember that little shop. Oh, we ate there at that place. I mean, <laughs> you know, so, but as far as uh, uh, watching, I don't have the patience to watch other movies for some reason or other. I just uh, I just don't. I don't even, unfortunately, have the patience to watch my own again. <laughs> After I make them, I'm through with them. I don't, I don't think... Uh, I don't think I've seen more than two of my movies. I'm pretty sure not more than two, maybe three out of 45 or so that I've looked at for the second or third time. I just don't. There's no reason to. I made the movie. It's done. You so looked it. You, you watched it more than anybody else ever could or would. In making it and editing on a moviola, you watch it literally hundreds of times every frame. You don't watch it in its total continuity until it's totally finished, but you watch it in bits and pieces, so by the time you finish it, you're sick to death of it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to see it again. You were there. Yeah, that's for certain. So anyway, and then the, the genres, I like to say, I, I like to be doing something different. For example, I've never seen a paranormal movie, and yet, what am I undertaking? to produce a paranormal movie. I have no idea what they put in the paranormal movie, but I soon will find out, and you and I putting our heads together are going to come up with a screenplay that hopefully will knock them dead. But I don't know what other people put in paranormal movies. I looked at the paper today, and it showed that Paranormal 4 was top at the box office. What? $30 million dollars or something? Yeah, 20, 20 or $21 million. Uh, I... I you know, I think about whoa, maybe I, think, maybe I should break down and go see what they're putting in those movies. But on the <laughs> other hand, it might induce me to think of doing something similar. And I don't do anything similar to anyone else. I just don't. no. And that's the one thing that, um, you know, for me, um, you know, being a, a fan for for so many years and and being so lucky to. To get to know you and visit, and of course to collaborate um, with you in the last so oh, I don't even know now say seven eight years something like that. That was the one yeah. thing that that drew me to your movies early on, even before I had seen the incredibly strange film show and knew Ted V. Michaels the man. Uh, that was the one thing that I always enjoyed. I would always say Ted V. Michaels and it's Corpse Grinders and it's Astro Zombies, it's Doll Squad, it's Girl in Gold Boots. It was all of these. Did we lose you? No, oh, we lost you. Looks like uh, Corey dropped off there. He should be calling back here in just a second. <laughs> he fell off the deep end, didn't he? Oh, that happened. That's been a while, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Let me see if I can get a hold of him real quick. Maybe he doesn't even know he's offline. Theoretically, <laughs> he's on the chat, so. Uh, uh, let me hit him up on the chat real quick. Uh, do 
Alrighty. Ah, there he is. Welcome back, Corey. I think I uh I think I got hey. cut off there. My my questions hey, are, are much too smart. <laughs> you're back, you're back. I thought maybe you did the dive on us here. <laughs> now for some reason Blog Talk Radio likes to tell me to shut up once in a while and they kick me off the air. <laughs> They leave everybody else, but they, uh, they they throw me to the wolves. But like I was saying before, I, I, I took a, a hiatus there, was that was the one thing that I always noticed, was that you always seemed to make exactly the movie that you yourself wanted to make. You weren't following trends. You weren't making uh, you know a movie that you know maybe fit in at the time. It seemed to me... That you always, you know, kind of made exactly what you wanted to make and didn't take no for an answer. Well, in a way that's good, and in a way it's bad because the marketing world that is has to buy your movie or or sell it. Uh, since I gave up being a distributor a number of years ago, I'm depending upon other people to market my movies. They are limited in what they can market. Uh, according to their budget and their way of advertising, so they kind of predict what it is that they would sell for you or what they would like you to make that they could sell. <clears throat> what they have found that the easiest movies to sell were the horror movies. So sure. that's probably the only reason why I revisited that, because even though the, even the Corpse Grinders, there was <laughs> what a dumb thing, promoted me as king of horror movies. What? <laughs> 19, 19, what was it, 1970? Yeah, No, it was 70 when I did it. Oh, my gosh. I got it in 70. Maybe did we took a while to get it out and get it into, <coughs> excuse me, a good release. But but uh, uh, King of Horror, well, how, how ridiculous. I, I couldn't imagine that, especially when I've been doing things for classrooms like teaching children how to, uh, recognize the difference in the various sizes of objects, like a, a little 16-millimeter thing I made. It was picked up by uh, uh, Encyclopedia Britannica after an in-between company bought it from me. I got uh, six cents an hour for my work, but I sold it to them, and they turned around and sold it to Encyclopedia Britannica. And made See, I, I've been too busy making the movies and not smart enough as a businessman to to make the money I needed to make. I, once I made them, <laughs> so, but in the early times, like Corpse Grinders and Doll Squad and Girl and Go Boots and those, I, and Blood Orgy, I did put my energies and focus into marketing them, but they still get ripped off. They still get stolen. They still get pirated here and there around the world. Ten Vile of Women is pirated. They have all been pirated. And even as of uh, this morning at 10 o'clock, I find another of my movies is pirated on the internet. And oh people don't gosh. have the right to do that. Here, I, I I literally, at this point in my life, I'm 83, I don't have income, you know. I do love my Alpha distributor. <clears throat> They're the best distributor I've ever had. They're so honorable, and they when they give me an accounting, and if they owe me money, royalties, there's a check company that they are marvelous to work with. I just have never had that uh, that kind of a relationship with the distributor ever, <clears throat> except them. Other people, the one or two over the line, the little mama papa, uh, that tried hard, but they just couldn't muster what it took to really be a, a big company. Uh, Richard and Gary Lester became close to me. I talked to them every day of my life. 
because they saw Corpse Grinders 2 behind the scenes. And uh, they've told me several times that was, they said, this is the kind of guy we want to work with. And, uh, so that's how we met. That they saw behind the scenes in the making of Corpse Grinders 2, where I just laid it out, how I did it, and, and what I did to make the movie. And uh, uh, they have been very close to me ever since. And, and talking about uh, the distributor, of course, Alpha, um, their website for anyone listening is oldies, O-L-D-I-E-S dot com. And they have done, like you said, a fantastic job with, with, with the entire catalog. And, of course, they have some great box sets still available. Uh, all of the new films um, that you've done are available there, Demon Haunt and Astro Zombies M3, M4. Um, everything is available there. They've done all new uh, artwork for a lot of the films and some great uh, new behind-the-scenes uh, things also available there. So if anyone is looking for that, you can visit tedbmichaels.com and, of course, oldies.com. Uh, and we do have a question from from the chat room. Um, we have a question wondering, how did you first meet Tura Satana? And if you could kind of talk about some of the other female starlets that you had in the films, perhaps Francine York, who uh, came back and made an appearance in Astro Zombies M3 Cloned. Well, let's start with Francine. I'm talking with her almost daily. She's asked me to write the foreword to her book, which I just did and sent it off to her 48 hours ago. Some of the reasons I'm up all night is doing things like that. Uh, she's so lovely to, to work with, to such a talent. And, uh, and, and of course... Um, in in the foreword, I mentioned how she first walked into my offices at the Columbia Picture Studios, and a knockout-looking woman who won beauty contests and such a fine actress. So it was obvious to me when I first met her that there is a part for her in the Doll Squad, and I ended up making her leader, Sabrina, uh, of the Doll Squad, and that's of course what Aaron Spelling when he made his Charlie's Angels patterned after the same theme as my doll squad. He named his leading lady Sabrina. <laughs> right. So anyway, uh, so that's how we met uh, Francine. I took her on a, um, a world premiere in Minneapolis, her home state. I was born in Minnesota also, St. Paul. She was from Ellaveth and, um, and became quite a star there. Uh, she won the Miss Ellaveth contest and got... Um, information. Now she got a contact from the vice president of the, uh, Hubert Humphrey, and uh, congratulating her. Got really got her a start. I knew her folks very well. I loved her mom and dad. Uh, we shared many a glass of wine together until they passed. And uh, they visited my home in the castle. And and uh, we just uh, you know once somebody's in one of your movies, you just have a friend forever. I don't think anybody who's ever been in one of my movies. To this day, is not a friend. They're all friends. We're friends forever. And uh, with Tura, for example, uh, I'm still in touch with her family. I knew her father, her mother, her sisters, her brother, and, of course, her daughter, Kalani, uh, very close. Uh, of course, Kalani has just recently moved to uh, uh, Utah and then maybe back to Reno. But in any event, she's um, had some difficulties with her well-being also, like her mother, but I was in touch with Tura right up until a week or two before she passed. It was hard to believe that, that she did. And uh, just like um, 
same thing with um, uh, the blonde bombshell here, Liz Renee. I was talking with her two days. She was so excited about getting into another movie and wanted to do another one with me. Two days later, she was gone. It's just hard to believe those things happen. But I first saw Tour Satana in 1957. I owned a nightclub and a furniture store. I was trying to make enough money to finance movies. <laughs> I had three buddies. One of them had a Cessna 180. He owned the Pilot Butte Inn, the big hotel there, an oil uh, standard oil distributor and a veterinarian doctor. The four of us got into the, the Cessna 180 and flew to Mazatlan. But we stopped over in Vegas, and while everyone else went to sleep or something, I went to um, Silver Slipper, and I saw Tura dance. And I was uh, quite taken, of course, to say, to put it mildly. And uh, I just uh, wanted to get my buddies to come over and watch her. Well, I think they did, but I don't recall because I think they were uh, quite sleepy at the time, and especially the guy that had to fly the 180. He didn't have night flying ability. We didn't have instruments. We just took our chances in the clouds that we weren't going to hit a peak somewhere. But anyway, uh, on the uh, on the way back, uh, we stopped in Vegas again. And, uh, of course, I wanted them to see uh, Tourist Dance. So uh, on the second time is when I did, didn't meet her yet, but I saw her dance again and her hair flying, and, you know, I was quite impressed. So six years later, let's see, 67. Yeah, about six years later, seven years, maybe closer to ten years later, an agent sent her into my office for a part in um, the Astro Zombies. And here she walks in, dressed in the same clothes that she wore in Pussycat, Kill Kill. And uh, so I, I, the Chicago twang wouldn't have worked for me in the part that I wanted <laughs> In the Astro Zombies, I wanted the Dragon Lady, you know, a, a, an Oriental Dragon Lady. And uh, so we began the arduous task of taking her Chicago accent out and, and, uh, and trying to give her the persona of a Chinese Dragon Lady. And so we became very close over the over the years. We had constant communication. She was in Dal Squad also. I had many a meal at her house, like I said, knew her mother her father before he passed. Uh, um, I'm still in communication with Kalani, the daughter. And I guess that kind of says it all about Dura and Francine. But yeah, you know and that was, uh, that was one of the neat things that I got to do was was when I came out there to uh, to the Astro Zombies 3 premiere. Tura was actually there. And uh, that and was that, uh, that was, was a wonderful thing. She was such a supporter. They had a tribute uh, to me here at the Hundreds Theater. I don't know the year, but a number of years ago. And by golly, Tura flew in just to give moral support uh, at that, uh, whatever you want to call it, a tribute to Ted Michaels, the movie, the movie maker. And this was before <clears throat> before uh, any of the, um, gosh, when was it? <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember the year, but anyway, it was after... The Doll Squad and after uh, the Astro Zombies, but it had to be somewhere in approximately 1987, somewhere in there. So anyway, bless her soul. She, whenever they had a a thing for Ted V. Michaels, uh, she she always said, "I've only made four movies and three of them were for Ted." <laughs> <laughs> 
anyway, uh, <laughs> that uh, she was such a supporter and uh, just a dear, dear friend. But like I said, you you make friends, and, and when you work with somebody as hard as, as we worked on putting our movies together, sometimes a year, you just become very close, and you never lose those friendships. They're friends forever. And what is the what's the one movie that if Ted V. Michaels didn't have to worry about budget, casting, locations, what is the one movie that you've always wanted to make and still want to make? Well, I no longer want to make Beowulf, but that was my big thing for ever since college when I read parts of the poem before the class. Everybody had to read something, and uh, after I read that, there was silence in the room. I I must have felt it so strongly that it was dead silence, and then a pause. They didn't applause for anybody when you read part of your in your English class, but they <laughs> dead silence and then a pause. I guess that's when I knew that I had such a deep feeling for the story of Beowulf, the Viking king, uh, that I wanted to make that movie. So. Uh, with um, James Gordon White, he created a story and a fantastic screenplay. I was so afraid of it getting ripped off that I never sent it anywhere except to Dino De Laurentiis' office. Eight months later, I find out they're making one. And uh, But the, the daughter, uh can't think of her name now, sent the script back and saying, I'm sorry, it's not what we're, not what we're after. Not that it was anything like, not that the one that they did was anything like my story. It wasn't. But the idea of it is, I just, uh, uh, Charles Bludorn, before he died, he was president of uh, Gulf and Western Paramount, and he read it because a woman I knew was uh, involved in uh, Girl in Gold Boots as a storekeeper. And uh, she had some friends, uh, uh, not only with, um, uh, oh my, some, some uppity people. In any event, um, uh, we, uh, I lost my train of thought there for a moment, but we thought we would find money to do Beowulf, and we couldn't. And uh, I think that the the closest we had come to it, James Gordon White has done a lot of screenplays. We corroborated. I, I helped him stay up in Idlewild, up above Palm Springs. I'd go up and visit on weekends, and we'd write, and I would try to add to whatever he had written during the week, and we came up with a hell of a good story. But Beowulf was too big. Uh, another uh, entity at Paramount read it, and they said, it's a marvelous script. Please go make it. We want to release it. And I said, sure. Give me the money. So, again, Henry Segerman, who brought um, from uh, uh, Crocodile Dundee in from Australia, he called about 1986, I guess. And he said... Um, You've got a screenplay called uh, Beowulf. Uh, you interested in selling it? I said, Hell no! I'm going to write. I'm going to produce and direct it, or I'll burn it. And he said, Where are you going to get eighty million dollars? I said, Eighty million? I can do it in Ireland or or uh, um, uh, anywhere over in there, Scotland for uh, eighteen, seventeen, eighteen million. You can't make that movie. It's much too big. But we'd be interested in buying it. And I said, well, but if I don't direct and produce it, I don't want to sell it. Uh, are you turning down a half a million dollars? I said, well, if you're offering me a half a million in cash, uh, that's a worthy consideration. He said, well, but first of all, we'd have to have you 
do a little rewrite on it. It's too big. You'd have to remove, remove some of the characters, remove some of the scenes. It's just too big. And I said, well, if you're telling me you'll buy it and you'll pay me for it, I'll do that. I'll do that. <laughs> no, no, you have to make those changes and then resubmit it. I said, then you're not making the offer to buy it. You're just telling me if I change it, you'd consider it. That's not sure. good enough. Thank you. Right. Thank you. And that's uh, that's the way it was. So that's what happened to it. But I now that I'm the age I am and my back is just giving me terrible pain, even as I sit here talking, I just in pain all the time, and uh, it's uh, it's bad. The rest of me is good, good, good to go. I go on my little cart ride every day, go about four or five miles. I'm on top of the world. But and uh, mentally, uh, I've been told I'm sharper than anyone they know. Uh, whether that's true or not, it may be a bunch of baloney. But in any event, but I don't have the physical capacity to take on. Uh, uh, sailing in a ship in a storm and holding a camera myself and all that, except the new little one. I'm going to handle that one myself. <laughs> <laughs> that one you could do just about anything with. Yeah, uh, there are, you know what, I'm thinking, boy, with this little camera, I can do all sorts of tricks. I could I could Velcro it to the ceiling and, <laughs> and get shots that I couldn't get any other way. I mean, just all sorts of thoughts come to me. But anyway... No, I uh, if I had the the money to do anything, I'm not sure what I would do right now. Right now, I'm focused on what you and I are going to concentrate on, and getting a good screenplay on Paranormal Extremes. Text messages from the dead. We're going to make a nice story out of that. Even though I've never seen a paranormal movie, and I probably won't, because like I said, about I don't know, 14 years ago, I went to a movie. <laughs> I saw often I see a movie, but anymore, sometimes in the morning over coffee, Shanti and I, we talk about the movies. We'll look at some of these 1940s movies, uh, 1942, some of the old ones, you know, with uh, uh, some of the old westerns. Uh, John Payne was in one the other day. I hadn't seen him in years and years in a part I didn't dream he would play. And then um, the guy who played the Ray Milland. I, I looked at that face in that movie, and I said, boy, that looks like Ray Milland. Well, of course, it was years and years and years before he was ever known to me as a, as a big-time performer. But it looked like him. And then, sure enough, when the credits come on, there's Ray Milland. So some of these old, old movies that I'm seeing on the disc channel, because I don't have cable or anything, I don't watch movies enough to have any of that. But while we're having coffee for an hour or so on a morning, you know, 11 o'clock, 11.30, somewhere in there, We'll watch a while to see if there's something interesting, and I see a lot of stars that that may not have been known at that time, but became big. So oh, sure, that's, yeah. That uh, that is an interest for me, but I don't know. Outside of that, I just uh, I just wanted to do one at a time. I can't even think of the next one right now. Usually, I'll have one or two in mind lined up, but paranormal extremes, text messages from the dead is on my mind right now. And it's completely on my mind as well. It has been for, for many, many months because we've been talking about it um, off and on for quite a while and now finally putting some pen to paper, getting a lot of ideas going and things. And the one thing um, with uh, as well is that I actually did see uh, the first Paranormal Activity movie whenever that came out, three, four, or five years ago. Um, and that was the only one and the last one I saw, and I couldn't tell you one thing that happened in that movie 
um, because I've forgotten it since then. I've had to make space for other things. But uh, the one thing that I did hear um, from someone who had seen the new one was that it was very, very shaky and that it was very unsettling. And they actually had to not, – not unsettling in a – you know, and it got under your skin way, but just hard to watch – and they said they actually walked out and uh, got their money back. So I, I know that between you and me, we'll come up with something better than that. Sounds like Blair Witch to me. <laughs> I was standing in line at a buffet at the Sunset Station, and I heard these guys talking, and they were so ticked off. They said, man, I thought we were going to see a movie. I've never been so disappointed in my life. I went and got my money back. I can't believe that they called that. And then finally... Somebody mentioned the title, <laughs> Blair Witch. <laughs> and so, uh, but the newspapers don't really speak highly of the movie, whatever it is. They just said that the guy that's making them has got onto a, a, a style of making money, and he's going to stick with it. And yeah. uh, what is it, Universal or Paramount? That, yeah, uh, I think that one's Universal, and I and I know that they put major, major bucks behind these now, but now it's become. You know, kind of the franchise uh, Halloween movie, and as long as uh, it keeps coming in at number one, I guess they keep making them. Even if they come in at number fourteen, it's, it's making yeah. money. Yeah, <laughs> the, like the day it stops is the day they'll stop. Well, in the paper today, the head of distribution—I forgot his name—Hollis or somebody like that—said, "Well, you know what? When we put five million in a movie and it brings in twenty million on the opening weekend." Uh, that's good business. Yeah, uh, so. yeah why stop at good. that point, I guess. Yeah, but whether we'll do something that will do that well, I don't know. But on the other hand, uh, hopefully people will see it. But I hope that, again, before we're through, you'll give them my website. And I'm thinking, again, a lot of people spell my name wrong. It's M-I-K-E-L-S. It's Mike with an L-S. So the website is tedvmichaels.com. Teddy Michaels, M-I-K-E-L-S, and of course everybody can uh, uh, find you uh, and find the movies at oldies.com, of course. And uh, Paranormal Extremes, text messages from the dead, working feverishly on this, ideas going all the time. Of course, Ted with the new camera and all the new toys, who knows uh, what's going to get dreamt up um, out of this one. And of course, you know, as you said, if uh, if people are, are looking to get involved with the movie on a uh, on a major major scale um they can uh sub, you know try to come up with a paranormal story a three to four minute type of segment and submit that and uh, they could get a credit in the film and perhaps uh even have their footage um and their little short segment that they may film included in the movie so if anybody's looking for any information on that of course you can uh, get in touch with ted through the website and, um, you know, you can get in touch with me through this program uh, every Wednesday yeah. night we're here. So um, that would be a, a very exciting thing, and I would think that people would get uh, would really get behind that. And, it's re- you know, it's, it's an interesting thing to, you know, to kind of include and, uh, you know, kind of bringing everybody together who wants to, uh, who's always wanted to be a part of uh, Ted B. Michael's film. Now they finally can in some way. Well, there's another thing I've been thinking about uh, doing uh, and by the way, I buy all of my DVDs from my distributor, Alpha, and uh, if anyone wants them uh, to get them from me through my website, I buy them through Alpha, but then I sign them and mail them on, so I got double shipping. I have to charge it a little bit more than Alpha does, but they can get them to me if they want 
want them signed, you know, autographed for whatever reason. The other thing is, I'm thinking of putting together a DVD. I have so many jillions of things that are collectibles. I'm, I'm, I can't even begin to name them. There must be a hundred right off the top of my head. Press books from the movies, uh, things that I've used in the movies. I don't have any more Astro Zombie hit masks. I mean, they were good. They've been gone. We only, the fact is, we had to clone them with CGI in the last movie because they're unavailable. <laughs> <laughs> but I, um, and I haven't had any. I do have uh, bobbleheads. I do have a number of bobbleheads left. But in any event, what I've been thinking of doing is assembling a DVD that'll probably run, you know, maybe 20, 30 minutes, and it will describe great many of these things that are available. You know that that can be uh, purchased as a as memorabilia or a collector's item or you know, something like that. And I'm thinking that if people would. Uh, either email me and tell me that they'd like to have that DVD, I will go ahead and make it. It'll take me a little while to make it, but I'll put all those photos of that, maybe even some videos of, of handling this stuff, too. Not just movie collectibles, but other things that I've got. Tons of stuff. i got, you name it. I've, I've, collected, I've been a collector all my life. I've, I'm surrounded with things that, uh, God, I can't even move in my place. I'm I'm so jammed up with stuff, and the triple car garage, same, just jammed with stuff. So then I probably could put uh, a, a price on these things, and then people will know without having to ask, you know, what what do you want for this this uh, helmet that belonged to Genghis Khan? And fifteen hundred, you know, I got shields like that. I got all that kind of stuff, and I can't use it. What's it for? I I gathered it all, thinking I'd use everything I ever had in a movie. <laughs> Someday I'd use it in the movie. But now I've got right. tons of stuff I don't need anymore, and even to hang on to it is tough. So and I'm if, just thinking of that, making a if DVD. If you're ever able to put something like that together, please let us know, because I know everybody at uh, the FearCast Network and, of course, myself, we would uh, absolutely love to, A, see all of it, and, B, we'd be uh, more than willing to share it with everyone who uh, we know would like to see all of that and perhaps well, purchase some of that as well. I'm talking about uh, doing it for free. In other words, if somebody says, I want it, I might be interested in buying something, I would do it for them, make it, and mail it to them for free, no cost to them. And I hope that that wouldn't be abused. But you know what? When you think about it, 64 years of making movies, how do I make a living? That is a good lesson for wannabe movie makers who, who feel that once they make a movie, the world will beat a path to their door. It doesn't happen. It doesn't work that way at all. <laughs> so I got to make a living somehow. And uh, anyway, well, I guess I've said it all. Uh, I, better, I better quit talking and let you talk now and maybe let you get on with the rest of your, your show, Corey. Well, this is the show, and I, I had one more uh, question. I guess it's it's a, a question kind of looking for a statement from you. And you kind of touched on it just a moment ago, but if someone, a young person, um, were, were just to pick up a camera right now, they have a burning passion, they have a story they want to tell, they want to make films, what piece of advice or, or, or what you know, sorts of words of encouragement or, 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 like I said, advice, what would you tell somebody who just now is picking up a camera and wants to make a film? Well, I'll give a little story. A man who called me from England about 1968 
and said, I want to come and work with you. I want to be a want to work in the film industry. Uh, um, maybe I could even become an editor or something. And um, I said, no, I don't have any work for you. I do all the editing myself. And as far as moving to Hollywood, I think you'd have to be prepared to spend a year or two before you ever get a job. And um, uh, I did everything I could to discourage him. But then I finished by saying, however, if you're so determined that that's what you want to do, don't let anything stand in your way. I met him many years later. In fact, he's only in the last five years. Academy Award winner Mark Goldblatt for editing. (laughs) And he remembered calling me from London, wanting to come and work for me in my studio uh, even before I did Corpse Grinders, and of course I didn't have any any job for him or any work. But that's what it all boils down to. If you're driven, do it. Don't let anything stop you, because as time goes on, you'll be sorry that you didn't give it a shot when you really felt you could. So go for it. That's what I've done. And that's the one thing, um, you know, that anybody who's, ever talked to me um that i've always said i was i was a fan of of your films when i was growing up and of course um you know the movies of uh of herschel and uh so many other uh filmmakers but it was that incredibly strange film show episode that began in the nevada desert and you hear that that accordion playing in the background it's roll out the barrel and you're you're, you're thinking <laughs> here's this british man in a cowboy hat in the desert, who is playing this? Roll out the barrel, and there's Ted. And um, that episode um, just showed me, um, you know, A, that uh, the character and the man behind the movies was much richer and and much and even more interesting and wonderful than the movies themselves. And uh, from that episode, I just could tell um, that uh, you were someone who had such a passion and such a talent for storytelling, um, and and just such a a, a a a real real passion for 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 making films. And and it was then and there that I decided, by hook or by crook, someday I was going to make my own movies. And I never would have dreamed in a million years if somebody would have told me that, uh, young man, you will write. With Ted and Astro Zombies movie, I would have called them crazy and I would have had them uh, locked up uh, from the, <laughs> in the white coats and the nets. I would have sent the men for them to uh, take them to the padded cell because I would have said they were crazy. But dreams do come true, and Ted, um, I, I cherish um, you know being able to uh, collaborate with you, be friends, and uh, I, it, it's, I'm a better person for for knowing you and, and for working with you. And I thank you so much for taking the time out on the show. And I can't wait to keep everyone updated on Paranormal Extremes text messages from the dead. Well, God bless you and thank you for that glorious praise. I don't know that I deserve it, but I, I just feel so honored to hear you talk that way. It's just uh, incredible. Thank you so much, Corey. Thank you for having me on, on oh, the show. Oh, shoot. No, thank you so much for taking the time. It was wonderful to have you on. And I've done the show for so long, I just hadn't had you on. I don't know why. We've been on other shows, but we've never done this one. Wow. Well, God bless you. I look forward to more communication on our story. Always, always. (laughs) We're always texting and emailing. All the time. God bless you. You take care. (laughs) 
Take care so much, Ted, and we will talk very, very soon. We'll talk tomorrow, I'm sure. So, um, okay, bye and, bye-bye, Ted. You can find Astro Radio Z on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, YouTube, and anywhere that podcasts are found. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and email us questions, concerns, or just general chatter at astroradiozpodcast at gmail.com. Coming from me, Derek Carey, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.